The love received so far has been so hard. There's a few dudes to run, but they medulla, they sharp, man, they so soft. Don't be thrown off any Zolar. Avoid them at all costs, like raccoons or skunks. But back to the regular scheduled program. The program is sponsored by Seven Heaven. What else in hell can you get an open line to heaven at 11-11? Emerge at the other end of the meditation portals and elevated walk tools. Even some abort tools. Any questions, comments, or concerns, press one. To everyone else, thanks for attending another session. I'm pleased to teach, but it's an honor to learn. Certainly, courtesy of KTL University. Please don't be frightened. I'm terribly sorry about this. You are! Peace, 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 peace to you and yours. Peace to you and yours. This is Know the Ledge Radio, and you are now rocking with the best. Yes, indeed. This is your host, Brother Blue Pill. Alright. I am going to be joined momentarily by my co host, Brother Red Pill. Peace to the family, peace to you and yours. Make yourself comfortable. You are in for a treat tonight. Okay. Very special, special program that we have put together with the family in mind. So again, make yourself comfortable. Get yourself seated and situated. Of course, we ask that uh you know, to the family that is joining us on this um, monumental evening, if you would take the time out, if you have any social networks, be it Facebook, Twitter, uh, you can Instagram the flyer if you want. You can tweet the show. You can put it on your status. You can change your profile pic, your cover update photo, whatever you feel free doing as long as that you participate in promoting and getting out the word and letting the family know that KTL Radio is on. You are now rocking with the best, and we do have a very powerful, impactful show for the family, all right? So they need to tune in tonight. Uh, you can call in if you're listening online and you want to send the phone number, you want to text the phone number around. Three four seven six three seven two one three five is the number they can dial into. Three four seven six three seven twenty one thirty five. Okay, they can tune in. All right. So wonderful to see the family back in full effect. Okay. Uh, I don't like using the word hope too much, but I gather that everyone had. A rather good weekend. Okay. Let me go and see what my co host did this weekend. I'm sure he got some testimonials. Work their way in gold. Call it from the three four seven. Peace. Peace. Peace to the God. Peace to the family. Yeah. Peace to everybody. Welcome to Know the Ledge Radio. You are now rocking with the best. Yes. This is your co host, the brother Red Pill, and I had a wonderful weekend. Uh huh. Yes, I did. We going to shout, out to, shout out to everybody that came out this weekend, um, to all of the events that were taking place in the tri-state, 
New York City area. Uh, real quick. A whole lot of things were popping off. One of the main uh one of the uh main topics that we were all dealing with this weekend was economics. That was the underlying theme for all of the events that took place uh Saturday, Sunday and even today this afternoon at the National Black Theater. Uh on Saturday we had the privilege of being in the presence of a legend, a living legend um, one of our giants, a uh, brother by the name of Dr. Claude Anderson. Okay. And a brother by the name of Dr. Bob Law. You had to okay. know about him. All right. Yeah, let's just go ahead and get him. Yeah, select. Legend. Rewind. Yeah, rewind. Okay. And uh, also uh, another young brother on the bill. A uh, few people have heard of this brother, brother by the name of Brother Polite. Okay. From yeah. White Legend. Now, they both brought very, very powerful presentations. Um, I would say that they came from a different angle. Brother Polite versus Dr. Claude Anderson. There were different angles and different approaches that they both took. But um, they were both very effective, okay? Uh, the brother did not complete his entire presentation. This is Dr. Claude Anderson along with okay. the brother Bob Law, you know. But um, the information that they were able to dispense was, it was, it was, it was powerful. It was powerful. You know, Dr. Claude Anderson is really heavy in the statistics, the numbers, and things of that yeah, nature. Yeah, he's a statistician. He's a statistician. <laughs> yes, dealing with um, the plight of our people. Hold, give me one second. Just give me one second. Yes, indeed. And, um, you know, throughout my travels this weekend, I was getting phone calls, and people that listened to the program were approaching me inquiring about how they could go about, you know, catching that live or, or on DVD. So I'm sure that uh, when the brother comes back, we'll be able to inquire about how we could come about, you know, getting a uh, copy of that. You know what I'm saying? People definitely, definitely want to tune in and check that lecture out. All right, shout out to Bob Law. Shout out to Claude Anderson. Shout out to Brother Polite. Shout out to King Simon. And uh, definitely shout out to everyone who came out to see Umar Johnson this morning in Harlem. I'm seeing pictures from that event. Definitely looked like it was a major showing of support for the, uh, the Prince of Pan-Africanism. Okay. Shout out to Patrice. Patrice is in the building, huh? Eh? Okay, shout out to Cleco, of course. Shout out to Turtle Gang. I see that he was behind the lens. Shout out to A.A. Rashid. Uh, yeah, of course, shout out everybody in the chat, entire family. And before we uh, continue any further, I definitely want to send 
our condolences on behalf of KTL Radio, and I'm sure the entire KTL family, we want to send our condolences to uh, Delva yeah. Blair. He he lost his, his son yes. over the weekend, you know. Yes. Um, for the family out there, uh, let's send the brother love and light and, um, you know, condolences in a time like this. Uh, as we are familiar, for those of us who are familiar with the journey of Dr. Blair, um, we know that he's gone through challenges in, um, in his journey dealing with the loss of loved ones. Um, his wife being one of the, um, you know, his, his wife being one of the, uh, well, the, uh, uh, you know, casualties of this whole thing. But um, his eldest son, a uh, brother who I had the um, pleasure of meeting, he uh, traveled on to the ancestors and to the, uh, you know, he made that he made that journey. So for the family, you know, just send some love and light. You know, you may even want to send some financial contributions or some aid to the brother. At um, you could mail it. I'll give up the address right now. If you don't get it, um, you could go into the archives. I'm sure that this show would be heavily archived. So for the family that is listening to the archives and is familiar with the works of Dr. Blair, do me a favor and, you know, just do your due diligence and send some love and light or some kind of aid to our brother so he can continue on his journey, all right? And the mailing address is 9317 South. You can just put S dot K as in King O as in orange, L as in legacy, M as in machine, A as in apple, R as in uh, rapid or, you know. That's Colmar Avenue, Oak Lawn, Illinois. And Oak is spelled O-A-K and Lawn, like your front lawn, L-A-W-N, Illinois, 60453. There's a phone number as well, 718 422 6685. 718 number? 708 422 6685. Oh, yeah, 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 the office number. Got it, right. Yeah, this number. Yeah, so, and family, you know, please send a brother some love and some light. Definitely at a time like this, we know that um is is very tragic. We do understand transitions, you know what I'm saying? We us Scorpios in particular, you know, we understand the necessary process, but it makes it no easier when a father has to bury his son or any child for that matter. So we definitely want to uh take note of that. And and like the brother mentioned, you know what I'm saying, Doctor Blair has had many challenges on his um his journey, you know, to bring the information forward to the people. And um because of that level of dedication, oftentimes 
you know, family is, is often on the on the front line. That's often the first casualties. You know what I'm saying? You know, whether it's through um, what some might perceive to be neglect. You know what I'm saying? It's all different types of forms that you know a, a person can um, suffer a loss. You know what I'm saying on the front line. So again. We definitely want to uh, keep that brother in the highest of spirits. And, of course, we're going to dedicate tonight's 11-11 meditation to him so we can collectively band our thoughts together and send that brother a, a light and a love bubble. Surround him with that, you know, at this particular time. Yes, sir. Right. So if you're listening, uh, we definitely we love you, Dr. Blair. Yes, sir. Um, Strength, strength of love. Indeed, indeed. Um, yes, and back to back to the lectures that took place this weekend. I don't want to um, forget to give these brothers who are, you know, were out here their props. Um, Sunday after the Saturday lecture with Dr. Claude Anderson and Brother Polite. It was very interesting. It definitely had the wheels turning in my mind. I'm going to keep it 1,101 that, um, you know, due to the dismal state and due to the the severity of the situation that I I could be honest with you, I I almost kind of like really, you know, I looked looked over it in a way. But um, after Claude Anderson painted that picture, he opened up my eyes, you know, and I was kind of, I mean, I walked out of there not feeling the most positive about the whole situation. I'm just keeping it real. I'm, and I'm an optimist. Oh, no, I'm you know what I mean? No, I am. Yeah, I am. But um, he kind of, I got washed up at that event, you know, on my, you know, just the place. It's it just. You you walk out with tears in your eye, you know what I'm saying? No, nah, no, nah, not tears, but that- it was just like. You know, he painted a picture that things is really bad, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, things are things are bad. So I went into Sunday with that whole, you know, that, that energy and that feeling, and I went to go see the brother Hotep for Hustle University. Coach Kaya and Hotep were in Brooklyn at the book, Nicholas Bookstore doing a thing, and I walked out of there refreshed, renewed, and reinvigorated. And, yeah, yeah, I walked out of there knowing, not believing, but knowing that irregardless of what the situation was, you know, because it goes back to what Coach Kyer was saying with that um, PDF that he shared with us on Friday. You know, dollars want me, baby. You know what I'm saying? Like, I am the money. You know what I'm saying? Man, make the money. Dollars want me. You know, they chasing me. They talk about me. You know, they, they, they heard about me, so they want to spend they time with me. They about me. They bargain. They want to get around Because they know how I handle them dollars. They know that they're going to have fun with me. Because remember, money is powerless. Money doesn't get up and spend itself. Money has no means of, you know, it has no intelligence to it. You are the intelligence. You are the intelligence. 
You know what I'm saying? Man makes the money. Money does not make the man. So you are the money. You attract that to you. you it's right. not let the me, other way around. Get, so gotta, once you get it out of your mind, that you have to chase money. You don't chase money. Money chases you. The same way that the honey, the, 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 the bees chase the honey. So once I had to I had to rewire and reprogram myself, and the brother did an excellent presentation, he put it at, he laid it out in layman's terms, and he definitely gave me that spark and that, 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 that charge that I needed, and I walked out of there just full of life. I was back on, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I was off a suicide watch, and it was back to the, you know what I mean? Back, back to the mission, back to the grind. You know, back right. back to uh, just knowing that this thing is gonna do what it does in this lifetime. I don't know, you know, no suiting Christian. When we die, things are gonna be better. Uh uh-uh. uh, we can get it right now. And then today on Tuesday, 10 a.m. in the morning on a Tuesday, it's 80 degrees in New York on a Tuesday. The National Black Theater was packed. Yeah. Shout out to Latik. Shout out to um, King Simon and other people that were responsible for that event. Dr. Umar Johnson was in the building today with the brother Infudishi. Now, let me tell you something, boy. I'm going to keep it real with you. I didn't think that this event was going to be big. You know, it was a Tuesday. It wasn't really promoted through many of the networks. Um, if it was a Tuesday morning, you know what I mean, 10 a.m., like who who does events at 10 a.m.? But right. Tonight, today's event had more people show up than Saturday's event. I also want to say that the Claude Anderson event was Bud Light. It was Super Light. It was Polite, you know, and a lot of people didn't come out, and that kind of that surprised me because, you know, Claude Anderson even said it on the show, and he's a legend, and he was like, if they don't show up, I don't show up, you know, and, you know, this is a brother who is not all over the place all of the time. It's not like if I don't see him at this event, I could catch him at the next one because you don't know when he's going to do an event. And a lot right. of people did not show up. You know, I'm keeping it 100. It almost was uh, like disheartening. Yeah. But today, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I guess I'm witnessing the drawing power of a Umar Johnson, and you know, what um, his messages and his name. What he brings to the table, you know what I mean? Because, you know, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. You know, people are, they, they coming out to hear that brother. He's on he's on a path at this moment. He also has some good news that he wanted to share with the New York family, um, dealing with his um, change of uh, domicile, you know what I mean? But we're going to keep that on the back burner until it's, you know, 100% secure. And definitely this will be the network where we'll let the family know about the future of Umar Johnson dealing with, you know, what state he's going to be in and where his headquarters are going to be from, where he's going to be uh, broadcasting from for the rest of his term. But, um, you know, if this was a presidential race, Umar is Obama at this point. You know what I mean? He's definitely a forerunner. He is, he, you know, yeah, he, got, message, he has momentum. You know what I'm saying? He's out the gate off yeah, and he has, he has uh, a book, you know, that's currency. He has a monumental offering. To the people, you know what I'm saying. So yeah. he he needs to be supported, and you know the people need to come out and hear what he has to say. And the same should be said for everyone that makes an appearance. You know, 
that has uh, vital information, you know, they need to be supported. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, yeah, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. But I hope that that doesn't discourage the speakers. I hope that that doesn't do anything to damper their message, you know, to make it seem as if what he was saying was any less important because there wasn't a uh, set amount of people to receive it, you know. The information that he presents is, is vital information, and it's necessary and it's needed as much as it is today as it was yesterday. Um, you know, what, what moves people to receive information the way that they do, we can never be quite too sure, you know, so I'm going to just leave that alone. And just say, for the family, please, you know, find another way to to lend support to the brother. If he's selling something on the website, go purchase it. Definitely get yourself, get your hands on that book. You can create study groups where you're at. Um, Bob Law, he has his location on Vanderbilt. You can still definitely go to Vanderbilt. I think it's Prospect Place and show support to his establishments, you know, and of course, you know what I'm saying. Polite is uh, polite's in the building, so you definitely get your opportunity to show support to the brother. But yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it just like I said for for anybody who had the privilege of attending all three events. I'm not sure if I'm trying to think if, who if there was anybody there at all three events. I think Sister Taliba, yes. I believe she'll be calling in. Shout out to Sister Taliba. She made it to all three events. She was there successfully at um, all of the events. So it was just a very interesting. It's going to take about a few more days for all of that information to download and, um, you know, for me to um, just put things in their proper perspective. But I got a lot of information this weekend. I know one thing overall that um, as a people, as a movement, as a network, as whatever you may want to identify yourself as family, we have work to do economically. We got work to do. We have to, you know what I mean? Like we have a lot of work to do, and it, it's not going to take a personality or a name. You, you can never leave it up to that. You know, if that's what this is going to be, just let me know, and, and, you know, I'll jump ship tonight. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not going to be a part of that a cheerleading squad and people that, you know, just use name drops and stuff like that and wait for somebody to come around and help give you uh, a solution that you're really not even going to carry out. You're just going to say it sounds good. Tweet a, a tweet about it. Tweet about it. You know, um, I'm, I'm looking for the people that are proactive, that are really ready to make moves. I'm going to continue talking about it because I believe that y'all are out there and y'all are listening because y'all want to hear somebody that's just as enthusiastic about it as you are. So, you know, let's just get on our job. But we're not going to talk about that for the rest of the night because tonight we have a monumental presentation, something that has never been done before. Um, We have on the show tonight two legends, okay, two legends um, when it comes to this information, especially from a Moorish perspective. These are well-researched, world-renowned scholars, brother by the name of Peter Moon and another by the name of Rick Smith. 
okay, for the family who may not be privy to the caliber of information that both of these lecturers and scholars bring to the table, that is why YouTube is a multi-billion dollar industry because they are, this is what they're here for, you know what I mean? Just go ahead, pull up a YouTube channel, or you can even go to Google and put their names in the search engines, and, um, you know, you'll be blown away with the uh, body of work that both of these gentlemen have put out. But for tonight, you are going to be sitting firsthand. You're going to be able to be, you know, sitting right here in the class, and you are going to benefit off of the information that will be disseminated tonight. All right? So I want to hurry up and get this show started. We even we wanted to start at 9 o'clock, but um, we definitely had to uh, talk about the things that were going on. So here's the description. I'm going to go ahead and read that. Um, just let me know if, if there's anything else that you want to talk about real quick before we get into the to the descriptions. Let's get into the descriptions. Okay, okay, okay. All right. So, join the Note Alleged family as we welcome back Rick Smith and Peter Moon to the program. Rick Smith, known for his historic Temple University lecture, European Confessions of a Moorish Legacy, will discuss in detail the process of reincarnation amongst the prophets of the ages, the Invisible College, the Moorish Legacy present in art, film, and literature, the family of man, who is in it and who is not, the origin of the modern-day Caucasian, the vendetta, the fall of man, vampires, werewolves, and Syrian dogs of war, plus many, 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 many more. And I'm sure that our brother Peter Moon will be talking about the Montauk experiments and also the prophet Noble Drew Ali, along with other very, um, uh, just with a whole bunch of other stuff that he'll be bringing to the table. So without any further ado, I want to open up the line for our first guest of the night, brother by the name of Rick Smith, and then we're going to go to Peter Moon. So call us from the 516-690. Peace. Hey, how you guys doing there? All is well. How are you? Uh, doing wonderful, and it's fantastic to be here tonight. And thank you very much for having me back on the show there. Um, that was a... Fantastic introduction. I uh, I uh, I don't know who that person is, but I'd love to hear him. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can and, you? Um, okay. Oh yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, but uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, talking about it tonight. Um, for those of you you know listening to the show, um, just wanted to let you know we did a fantastic presentation. Um, with uh, with Tyson over at uh, Black and Nobel, and uh, okay. last night. Shout out to them. Yeah. Shout out to Black and Nobel, Tyson, Hakeem. Right, and um, he was uh, he was real excited about it. Um, I was there for about four hours, talking straight on through, and um, he caught it all on tape, both you know on video, and he's going to be putting it together for sale. 
So, um, you know, if you guys are in the area there in Philadelphia, go check it out. No doubt. No doubt. I definitely need to pick that up. Shout out to the whole Philly family. You know what I mean? So can you briefly, before we bring Peter Moon in, can you give the family that is on the line tonight a brief description about who Peter Moon is? I mean, who uh, Rick Smith is. Sure. Um, I myself have been um, talking about this for quite a while. Um, As far as the uh, Moorish legacy and its relationship to um, the history of extraterrestrial intervention and alien contact with the family of man um, and the differences therein uh, between uh, which, which parties out there in the galactic community are, are good and bad and the differences between the fundamental differences and spiritual differences between um, the spiritual presence of the Moorish legacy and also with the um, uh, what the opposing team is all about, which is what I refer to as the Masonic agenda, and therefore that which is represented by the pale skin or the um, the walking dead, so to speak, um, and how that has brought us to the position of where we are today in our global society, how things have evolved to this point. Um, I first officially started uh, going public with all this in 2005 and uh, getting the message out there. And what's interesting is that that very first lecture in 2005 was done in a very little town in New Jersey known as New Egypt, which nowadays I look back on that and realize that that did not happen by accident. So it was a powerful symbolism to start the start that kind of revolution there in a town called New Egypt, and so in conjunction with that, since I brought that up, I also get into the Commission mysteries, the Egyptian mystery schools, uh, the Egyptian University, which is what I prefer to call it, um, and how and why the Egyptian University system was brought to this planet in the first place and how it was destroyed and why it was destroyed um, and uh, not with good intentions and how that led to basically the the downfall of the human race since then. So um, these are the kind of things that people need to awaken to and understand. So You might have to go uh, set a six-hour show up there. <laughs> no, that's what I... I in my mind, I was like, so I guess this is just going to be the preliminary of a, of a, a multi-part series because if there's one thing that, um, that that I know about your information as well as Peter Moon's information is that it's intense and it's detailed and it definitely cannot be covered in three hours. So, um, <laughs> yes, I know. You know. I'm, I'm I'm excited about that. You know what I mean? But um, definitely thank you for that description. What we're going to do at this point is bring Peter Moon in, let him introduce himself to the family, and then from there 
I would definitely, um, you know, we can do a, a few questions. I'll ask you a few questions about uh, some of the topics that you just described and some things that you've covered in your lectures, and then from there on, we could just flow right into the presentation. Okay. Wonderful. Excellent. All right. So uh, without any further ado, I want to open up the line of our other esteemed guest for the night, brother by the name of Peter Moon. Call us from the 516-681. Peace. Hello. It's nice to be with you guys tonight. All Peter, right. Welcome back. Peace. Welcome back. Thank you. Steve, Mr. Moon. Steve. All right. Uh, Brother Peter Moon, can you introduce yourself briefly to the uh, to the Nolaledge family, for those who may not be familiar with you or your work? Yes, I got started in writing and publishing in 1992 with the release of the Montauk Project: Experiments in Time, which I co-authored with Preston Nichols, which was essentially about very unusual experiments in mind control and psychic amplification that took place at Montauk Point, New York. What how I became involved in the, the Moorish legacy was that because those experiments were uh, rather hidden and the data trail was shredded by the intelligence agencies involved, I tried to verify certain aspects of these experiments, so, so certain which were uh, – hard to find, but when instead of getting hard data, what I had is experiences with synchronicity and call it quantum coincidence if you want. And all of these, without going into the whole story, which is the subject of a whole book, it led me to a, a data trail uh, leading to the fact that there were ancient pyramids at Montauk, which I supplied pictures in my book, Pyramids of Montauk, and that there were pharaohs. Uh, the Montauk pharaohs or the pharaohs of Montauk. I began to work with the, the shaman of the tribe, Sharon Jackson, who embraced me in a way that most other people have not embraced me because my work's very controversial because she recognized my work and she said that her ancestors came from Egypt. Now, I found out that the, the land on which the base had had been was sacred Native American ground and that it was all confiscated and taken away and the montauk indians were declared extinct by new york state oh they're very much not extinct and that's a whole nother story but the main complaint against them not being indians was that they uh were not indians they said they were black now this was not a fair assessment because if you saw the pictures there, there. Of course, they had melanated skin, but they were Indians, and there were, the charges were that they had intermarried and had become, you know, black, and that that wasn't totally true. Uh, although there were, and I and I know I met one of the so-called black Indians, uh, Robert Cooper. He's as Indian-looking as you want to imagine. His he's just dark of dark color. But as I yeah. began to continue my research. I found out that the first, the word more first appears in the regular lexicon of American in Delaware, the Delaware Moors. Now, I also knew that the Montauk Indians had come from Delaware, the, the Lenny Lenape. So, Lenape. Yeah. So, so this was, I said, oh, this is a connection. So 
and then I began, and I, and I had already discovered uh, Noble Drew Ali and his uh, teaching of the Moorish legacy of his nation, which has been so obscured, so obscured. So uh, there was another time, uh, space-time experiment that took place near New Egypt, which Rick was talking about, near Ong's, or in Ong's hat, and that was uh, had the Moorish the uh, what was called the wake of the Moorish Science Temple was supposedly involved in that with Princeton physicists and uh, hippies from Princeton and, and Sufis and all this stuff was creating a space-time experiment with hallucinogenic drugs in Ong's Hat, New Jersey. So that was a book that I published, Ong's Hat, the beginning. So there's, this is how I, kind of who I am and how I became involved with uh, the Moorish element. Indeed. Indeed. Definitely. Let me ask you a question. Uh, going back to a statement that you made earlier about the, uh, the Montauk tribe and the admission or rather the, uh, the government saying that the Montauk tribe disappeared, would you agree that they were denationalized by, by just the statement of them saying that they no longer exist? Would you agree that they that the government said that because they denationalized them and changed their nationality into quote unquote black? Well, they rather than denationalized, they were basically successfully ignored. So what, what, the feds have never issued any uh, proclamation or decree about the Montauk Indians. What when I went to look up the deed for the property. I found uh, there was a lot of synchronicity in, in the deed, uh, the court docket dates of 666, which was very interesting. But the, the, the deed for the property is a quitclaim deed, saying that the government cedes all its interest uh, over to New York State. But we can retain the rights to the underground, and we can take it back any time we want. So New York yeah. State had the property – but so the, the feds didn't really comment on the extinction. The declaration of extinction was by the New York State Supreme Court. So, uh, and appeals failed, and, and they use all these weird technicalities. But if if I'm answering your question, the denationalization didn't need to occur because they just ignored them. So uh, they're not recognized yet. If some dispossessed Indians want to get recognized, federal recognition, they have to go through the Montauk's uh, tree of, I can't even think of the word, genetic history, because they have the most complete genetic history of any Indian tribe around. Really? Yeah, yes. So you have to, if you want to prove you're an Indian, you prove that you're related to the Montauk Indians, because they have a, a yeah, yet they are not recognized. And the reason they're not recognized is is it's it's called the biggest travesty in uh, Indian affairs to this day, as far as the courts go. And and the, the the Bureau of Indian Affairs is so corrupt; it's not funny. It's not something that's talked about very very much. And it's uh, you know. So, so I, I hope I've addressed your question. Is you know, not, they didn't have to denationalize them; they just ignored them. Yes, as they have many other tribes. That's, that is definitely. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. And just just for the family who may not be familiar with the um, 
the demo, the uh, the location of Montauk. You just yeah. let the family know where that will be located. Um, yes, it's at the extreme eastern end of Long Island on the South Fork. Long Island goes into a North Fork, which is Orient Point, and a South Fork, uh, which is Montauk Point. It's about 120 miles long the island, so it's about 120 miles from New York City. If you drive from New York City with all the stop and go that you'll encounter, it's about three hours. Okay. Is it, near, is it near and close proximity to the Hamptons? Yes, it is an extended beyond the Hamptons. If you're in East Hampton, which is sort of the last Hampton, it'll take you 20 minutes to a half hour to get to Montauk Point, depending on the traffic. Okay. Now, very quickly, can you also explain, you know, through your research, what were you able to find about the actual land mass? Why did they want Montauk to pretty much launch their experiments? What is this connection to the morphogenetic grid? Well, that's a very interesting question because Montauk is not like uh, the rest of Long Island, which is, you know, the remnants of a glacier, a carved glacier. Montauk was an island and an independent mountain underneath. And they don't like you diving out there to this day. It uh, So it was, uh, a, this is getting more uh, esoteric, but it was uh, supposed to be an ancient Atlantean mountain. Keeping in mind Atlantis was not a specific location, it was a culture, yeah. uh, which would have included the, the entire, not only the Atlantic Ocean, but it would have extended beyond to uh, the Mideast, up into uh, Eastern Europe and Bimini and all over the place. So Montauk was one of these promontories, and the Atlanteans were known to have put ancient uh, repositories of information and knowledge. Now, I can't prove this, but uh, according to legend, you, you would have repositories, and according to the, the medicine man of the Montauk Indians, Artie Crippen, there there's chambers below that area with sphinxes and whatnot, something like the movie National Treasure that the government has never been able to penetrate or get at because they have all sorts of underground installations there. So so it was it was a sacred spot, recognized as a sacred spot or a portal for consciousness, much like any other sacred site on the planet. It had a definite correspondence to Land's End in England and the dolmens located there, which are the, the stones. But And there's a cable to this day that runs between those two areas, uh, an AT&T or British telephone cable. But So there's always been a long connection between those two. So this was a, considered or recognized by the ancients as a portal, and then when the they're doing their funny experiments, they're discovering radio waves and the amplification of radio waves. These tend to mimic the natural patterns, much like steamships would mimic uh, boats coming down uh, or take following the Gulf Stream. And they, the uh, modern boats would follow the uh, ancient routes, trade routes, so will the uh, – Radio waves and the modern technology follow the ancients as well. That's why it was chosen. 
Indeed. Indeed. There's um, a brother in the chat that said that Long Island used to be a part of Morocco, according to Western scientists. Uh, has that research ever come across to you? Uh, not per Long Island per se, but it doesn't surprise me because uh, according to what we learn with, with Noble Drew Ali, is that America was not named after Amerigo Vespucci, which is a shore story or a cover story. It was named yes. after El, Mar El, Mar El Maracanos, which means El Morocco. Yeah. El Morocco, northeast of Mexico, north of Mexico. Yes, and, and one thing I'd like to say about the, Mo the Moorish, uh, you know, we hear a lot about um, genocide of, of the Jewish people uh, who in the Bible are, you know, party to, to genocide themselves because there was a yes. lot of war going on. But, you know, there was definitely genocide committed against the Jewish people by, by the Nazis and, and perhaps some other people, too. They could well, tell I would all say about the it, Spaniards, yeah, I would say the, uh, the Spaniards and the Portuguese, um, way before the Germans and in the, in the, in the rise in the age of Hitler, we're talking about the uh, genocide of the Sephardic Jews and the Moors simultaneously that took place in the, um, during the Reconquista, 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1600s. That's where I was going with this, but what I wanted to say, and I, and I really wouldn't blame the Spanish and Portuguese. I would blame the Catholic Church, who, who the, embraced the, the Portuguese, because you know, many of the Spanish and, and Portuguese were were Protestants or or, or uh, Moors themselves, if not uh, what's that what's that other word? Uh, Jews, yes. So. Mm -hmm. A lot of Portuguese Jews. Columbus was supposedly even a Portuguese Jew. I, I don't really know, but uh, the nobody really knows. I don't think. But uh, the, the the what has been done with the genocide of the Moors, or has been the complete erasure of their history. It has been so thorough and so well done that. It, it's a magnificent job. It's just it happens to be an evil job, and this is so burned out of the memory that we've lost it. We've I haven't completely yep. lost it, but people can't even take it too seriously because of that obliteration of the memory. Indeed. Now, would you say that um, the Inquisition and uh, the Reconquista and these other cold words? That the European, the, the the Christian Europeans have used, those those are basically cover-ups to the Holocaust and the genocide of the Moors. Well, uh, yes, of, of course. There's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a passion. It's it's an, it's obsessive, compulsive. It's, obsessive it's just compulsive, ingrained exactly. into the culture, and a lot of it has to do with the word, the fact that the word more. Uh, is, it means cat. More Moresh is Mao, and Resh is cat head or cat kings. And the cats represent the feminine energy. That's where we get the pejorative term kun, which meant feminine, female. Black people were called kuns, K-U-N, which is you have kun lam, which is the Chinese uh, or a 
original name for Kuan Yin, and Kun Lam means, you know, blue queen. So it represents the feminine, and and this is a denigration of the feminine, of the cat represents the feminine. It's it's just a... And then the Catholic Church has the co-opted name of cat, holic, whole cat, Catholic Church. They, they co-opt the, the sacred name, which is comes from Leo, which is the most exalted sign of the Zodiac, which refers to the cat, of course. Indeed, indeed. I believe Brother uh, Dr. Valentine touched on this in a few of his lectures. Um, Brother Rick Smith. Yes, I'm right here. Do you care to touch on, do you care to add on to what uh, Peter Moon was talking about just in terms of the research that you've been doing on the Catholic Church? Uh, yeah. You know what? What's interesting is that history uh, history will always repeat itself for those who do not learn from it. And when you look at the grand scheme of what's happening here, um, I'll use my example you know, and just, you know, um, um, add an addendum to what Peter Moon was saying about Montauk before. Um, it's long been known, obviously, that uh, the Montauk natives, the Montaukets, are descendants. They are the inheritors of the term Pharaoh from Egypt. They still refer, to, they still use that term to this day. Okay. Um, and with good reason. Um, And the idea of whether it be ignoring them or denationalizing them or just basically erasing them from history and taking over their land and using it to do all sorts of abominable and heinous and, you know, things in conjunction with the opposite end of the spectrum, okay, the, the Masonic element, um, it's it's um, across the board. You see this happening throughout all of history, as a, a slap in the face and a stab in the back. In a sense, the mo, the modus operandi, has always been rape, pillage, and steal, and then make it look like it's your own history to justify your own fraudulent existence. Um, you see this happening. Initially, with um, with the evolution of the Catholics, which Peter Moon brought up before, the word Catholic, which is another form of raping and pillaging the sacred cat, which represents the Moorish legacy, and then using it towards this corporate abomination known as Vatican City. Um, during the, the during the um, insurgency, so to speak, the infiltration when the Catholics, which eventually became known as the Catholics, uh, were infiltrating the Roman Republic and slowly but surely mangling it and warping it into their own incarnation, they had started putting their own people in power, two of which were Emperor uh, Justinian and Emperor Theodosius. And um, these two lackeys, for the Catholic agenda, uh, passed decrees to not only officially shut down the Egyptian university system because it was giving far too much competition to the Catholic agenda and the Catholic Church, 
not only to shut it down, but also to smear it, bury it, and erase it from history. And therefore, anyone who dared to go there and try and find their hidden history or find the secrets that were left behind uh, would be ostracized or even worse, would be put to death. Two such examples were Socrates and Copernicus, both of whom got all their information and were officially indoctrinated into becoming Egyptian and then tried going back to Greece and, and Europe and, and, and Italy with their information and as such were summarily put to death. Now, when you put that into perspective, you realize this goes a long way to explaining the overarching agenda against the Montauk natives because they knew as well as anybody else in the know would have known that these people were directly connected with the bloodline of the pharaohs from Egypt. Uh, as such, it is no surprise to anyone why the Montauk Nation would have been summarily targeted uh, in one way or another and in such a heinous and negative manner, even to the point of, like what Peter pointed out before, having a white racist judge look at them and say, um, you're too black, you're not a real Native American, therefore you don't exist. Now, if that's not a double stab in the back, I don't know what is. Um, you know, first of all, you're, 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 you're slanderizing someone who is seven shades darker and really dark. Uh, and two, it's just, you know, just, just the ultimate insult to the whole thing, uh, not even realizing that real Native Americans were as dark as their African brothers and sisters to begin with because of the yeah. Olmecs that came across to South America and then evolved northward. Um, yeah, you had a few of them come across the Bering Straits, not a whole heck of a lot, certainly not as much as what the academics would have you believe. The bulk of them came from the Olmecs. And so you're talking about Native Americans who were as black as any African. Um in their original state. So, you know, just to put a, a larger perspective on it, anything that associates itself, anything, anything that associates itself with the Egyptian university system um, throughout history is automatically going to have some kind of subtle, covert smear campaign put against it to bury it, ignore it, or, you know, uh, have some kind of, like, um, you know, political assassination committed against it. So. Indeed, indeed. And I just wanted to add on to the whole Montauk uh, situation, as well as the fact that Brother um, Peter Moon had the book that was entitled Pyramids in Montauk. We didn't speak about the pyramids in Montauk. But it also takes me back to the fact that before the uh, boroughs were split up, uh, Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island, it was all part of one landmass, and it was entitled uh, Kings County. Right. You know, and um, the reason, you know, 
one of the reasons why it was entitled Kings County as a part of New Amsterdam, which were later which was later renamed New York, is because of what you said as I did my research that the tribes, the original tribes that um inhabited that landmass were seen as royalty. Ninety percent of what was seen as royalty? The tribes that inhabited the um the landmass that was yes. called Kings County, they were that was royal land. Exactly. And and the Montauks were considered the the pharaohs of the other tribes uh, on Long Island. Excellent. That's and they, they have the Montauk Club. You can go to the Montauk Club today in Brooklyn, and that was the one time the headquarters of Tammany Hall. And you'll see a mural of Montauk Indians over the top. It's a relief of the history of the Montauk Indians. And they co-opted that name to call the Montauk Club. These were the most high politically influential people in uh, in New York City at that time, the Tammany Hall Group in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's a club that anybody of any race can join. Mm. And even for the family, they can go and watch Gangs of New York. They show you Tammany Hall. They show you the reliefs of the um, indigenous elders inside of Tammany Hall in the movie, and they have on fest. Hello? I'm there. Yes. Yeah, I'm right here. Did you hear me? Uh, well, Peter yes, can hear you. No, I said, yeah, in the movie Gangs of New York, Martin Scorsese's movie Gang of New York, they show you images inside of Tammany Hall of the indigenous elders inside of Tammany Hall and they have on fezes. Ah, uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So the tribes is the, the, the elders from them from the quote unquote tribes. So that's yeah. who they actually were coming to to get things ratified and, and to pass their agendas, you know what I'm saying, before they push them out. So yeah. That, that would make uh uh, a lot of sense when you consider that um, from the from the very beginning of the um, ratification of the thirteen colonies into thirteen states and therefore the beginning of the of this corporation known as the United States okay um, you have this um classic showdown between the the dirty colonists who were themselves, in, in a sense you could say half more, half Mason, especially the founding fathers, because their lineage came, you figure 300 years had already gone by, their lineage had come directly from Native American tribes. Um, and then of course there's the fact that there's a showdown between the the ultimate dirty colonist, who is George Washington, uh, and the master mason himself, white Freemason General Cornwallis. And so you had this tremendous insult, this tremendous come down to white Freemasonry when Cornwallis had to bow down and give up his post at the end to this this dirty more, this dirty colonist, okay, named George Washington. Yep. When that was when that was done and over with, these 
um, these revolutionary freedom fighters, a.k.a. the colonists and the founding fathers and mothers, um, they looked at each other and had no idea what to do with themselves at that point. Okay, fine. You know, they beat the oppressor. They beat back King George um, and won the battle. But in the end of it all, they looked at each other and they were like, so, you know, what do we do now? Um, and the problem is is that they were too ignorant and stupid to know anything outside of a dictatorship or a, a, an aristocracy. So they ended up looking right at George Washington, and they said, um, we want you to be our new king, and just to show you how naive and stupid they were. And he turns around and says, um, we just got finished defeating one King George, and you want to create another King George? What the hell is the point of the Revolutionary War? We might as well just hand ourselves back over to England. In which case, they realized at that point, they were smart enough to admit to the fact that they were too dumb to realize what the answer should be. So what they had to do was go to the Iroquois Confederation, which already existed as a democratic confederation, a democratic society, um, and, um, and get advice from them directly. Uh, so once again, there's that Moorish element coming into it, and there's all sorts of linguistic symbolism involved there that, uh, that Peter and I have talked about in the past with um, the very term, Iroquois, um, in association with the term Lake Erie, Iroquois, Iroquois. Erie means cat, okay? Iroquois means people of the cat, cat people, a direct reference to the Moors. And here you have this democratic confederation of the Iroquois, okay? Yeah. That is now being indoctrinated into the colonial governments to help them figure out what to go do with themselves in Philadelphia, okay, where the original capital was. And so to create a transition there, uh, these, these Iroquois representatives came in and became the first uh, 9, 10, 12, whatever it is, presidents of the the continental government in Philadelphia um, before they finally figured out what to do with the Constitution and what a democracy really was. In that transitional period where you definitely had uh, a significant number of dark-skinned, Moorish, Iroquois, Native American representatives serving as, quote-unquote, the interim president, okay, telling them what to do, how to help them along, showing them what a democracy looks like, and also getting them in contact with the proper books. So they made them read the books about Greek democracy and what the original Roman Republic was like, up to and including Marcus Aurelius before it went all downhill and became a, uh, a nasty empire. Um, and had them read all that information from ancient esoteric history as to how a um, 
political system is supposed to be run in unison with the people. And they basically said to him, look, this is what it looks like. Uh, we know you're white, but try not to screw it up. And unfortunately, we've screwed it up, you know, in less than 200 years. We've botched it up six ways to Sunday. But um, that's how you, uh, that, that's why when you see something like in Tammany Hall in the movie Gangs in New York, that's where that influence is coming from. It's coming from the fact that when it came time to create a civilized government, we had to turn to our dark-skinned predecessors to teach us how to set up a democracy. <laughs> well, that was along the way that, you know what I'm saying, we was just, you know, nursing the trigger. But um, <laughs> is, is that that's where the longhouses and things come from. I'm, I know Brother Tosh Tariq Bey talks about this extensively as well. Yes, yes. And this is where the concepts of uh, even the uh, Freemasons come out of, uh, you know, the interactions with these tribes. Yes, and this becomes the, now, granted, you know, I use the term half more, half Mason in reference to the founding fathers, okay? Um, and, I mean, that, that's a very um, base simplification of what I'm really describing. Um, yes, the founding fathers were um, Masons as well. Uh, well-respected in their Masonic lodges, and yes, that's a strike against them because in that environment, I mean, you know, even George Washington had a slave plantation, and George Washington had children with four of his black slaves, okay, which is something that nobody ever talks about because uh, nowadays, you know, you have to wonder... Um, what you know? It's a, a Peter and I have joked about this in the past. What happened with all the white people with the last name Washington? Um, you don't see too many of them, but you know, name, you know, and um, and it kind of makes you wonder. With actors like um, Denzel Washington, one of my personal favorites, what his background really came from, and um, you know, it's a, there's there's people walking around out there today of color and hue, who have that bloodline from George Washington. Um, yes. But Are you familiar with the Washita? Yeah, the Washita, exactly. Peter, Peter Moon talks about that, too. Um, and uh, he, he's probably better at elaborating on that part of it. Um, but the thing is, is that um, it's always been a strike against the Founding Fathers that they're Masons, that it's always been a strike against them. And that's what paved the way for them to think it's okay to be slave owners, even after writing the Constitution um, and uh, labeling slaves as chattel or cattle and therefore three-fifths of a person. The saving grace came from the fact, though, that um, they were well aware of the fact that the only way they were going to survive was by <clears throat> um, allowing um, themselves to open up to the Moorish legacy, realizing 
that um, is you guys were touching upon it before. Um, Peter was talking about you know the original name of America coming from Morocco, Morocco yeah. being the original capital of the entire Amexum Empire of the planet, the entire Asiatic nations, and therefore Morocco being the first country to give the fledgling United States its blessing and recognizing the United States as a sovereign nation with the stipulation that they continued having a healthy relationship with those very same dark-skinned Native Americans. Of course, that went down the tubes as well, and this is where the term Indian giver comes from, um, with, uh, you know, uh, white expansionists going out there into the West and making empty promises they never intended to keep. So... Indeed, indeed. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Right. So, let's go a little bit back into history. Let's let's get back in the time machine, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Take a, let's get into and let's get into the DeLorean and take a trip back. What I want to do at this point uh, with Rick Smith and uh, Peter Moon, feel free to to jump in and add on whenever, you know, you feel that the time is right. But what I want to do at this point is somewhat, you know, a quick run-through of the lecture that you've been doing that that has blown me away, Paul, and a lot of other uh, people who came in contact with the DVD that you did um, mm. about the you know the European Confessions of uh, of a Morris legacy. Okay. 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 Um, feel free to touch on extraterrestrial. You know, feel free to go in and just you know because the audience here tonight. They're well researched and they're open to everything that you're dealing with. So don't don't feel restricted or held back. You know what I mean? Like the, the audience tonight, we're we're on point and we're with you. So okay. you know, okay. just give us a quick run through. All right, there. Um, and then well, I'm sorry, and we could lead up to Drew Ali. And at that point, I would I would uh, ask Peter Moon if he could begin to expound on the research that he done on the prophet as well, and we oh, can get into the whole prophet reincarnation thing as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, well, here's the thing. As I'm explaining this to the audience, I want you guys to keep a couple of very basic fundamental concepts in mind. One of them is, as it is above, so it is below, which means you have to ask yourself, how did everything come to this point, and where did it all start? Okay. Um, second thing I want you guys to keep in mind as a basic concept is that when what, what it really comes down to is there are those elements out there that have an investment in flesh and bone. And what I mean by that is you, me, and the next-door neighbor, the human elements, the human factor, the human condition, the spirituality of the human being, 
the cat energy and all that stuff, the Moorish legacy, the lamp of illumination, the whole gambit, all right? That's all under the helm of flesh and bone. And then there's the other side of it. There are those elements out there that have an investment in wood and stone. Um, and that is, of course, uh, the real estate factor, the tradable commodities inside that real estate that the actual human being lives on. And therefore, this is what labels the human being as an official slave, chattel, property of the land. So you're talking about two completely different perspectives on the human condition. One has an investment in the spiritual development of the human being via the Moorish legacy. Uh, the other has an investment in pure profit, in which case there is no human being, there is only good viable slaves that are necessary for reaping the profit. Um, so when I say, as it is above, so it is below, uh, remember, uh, we are not smart enough unto ourselves to come up with the idea of a stock market on our own. If we have a stock market on Earth, like NASDAQ or Dow Jones, guaranteed there's one out there in space in the galactic community as well. Okay, and that's where the idea came from. Down here on Earth, we have something called the two-party system. Once again, that comes from out there. It's an alien instrument designed for the sake of control. Uh, we did not come up with that idea on our own, and it didn't happen by accident that we're stuck with Republicans and Democrats as a two-party system, and we'll talk about where the original two-party system came from. Um, so keep those elements in the back of your mind, because that a lot of what we talk about rests on understanding those fundamental elements. Uh, so a good place to begin would be how did our solar system get wrapped up in this whole cosmic Shakespearean drama? Well, um, it, it starts off with a, um, a very, very old and ancient um, empire, which we will know in a, we will know in this conversation as the um, the Arian Empire or the Empire of Orion. Um, now this is significant because the term Arian segments into two other terms: Orion, mispronounced by scientists as the constellation of Orion. And, of course, the other term, which was um, popularized by the Third Reich as the Aryan super race, and rightly so, um, because there has always been in the Orion Empire an emphasis on the supremacy of the pale skin. Um, and this is a theme that repeats itself over and over again, um, and we're going to talk about what what happened with the pale skin, where it came from, and why it came into existence at all when it wasn't supposed to exist in the first place. So the Arians, this Orion Empire, um, which represents the complete polar opposite of Mother Earth, okay? Um, this empire uh, 
was run by and is run by a race of beings that can best be described as bipedal Komodo dragons, okay, bipedal reptiles. Um, you see this described all through mythology and ancient history and uh, ancient religions as the, um, you know, the Mayans refer to it as a space crocodile, okay. Um, in um, w whenever there's a reference to, um, let's say, demonic possession, what does the demon always look like? It always looks like a bipedal reptile because there's no such thing as demons per se, but there is such a thing as reptilians who love to, you know, suck the life right out of your soul like the parasites that they are, okay? Um, so there's a misconception through history. Um, and these Arians, okay, they have an hierarchy, uh, an aristocracy to their, uh, an aristocratic system, all right? Um, the upper echelon is run by um, these pale-skinned reptilians, no surprise. And that pale-skinned upper echelon is known as the Siakar. Um, and there's no mistake in that name either. It's spelled C-I-A-K-A-R, Siakar. Um, interesting how it starts off with the, the terminology C-I-A, uh, which is also no mistake. But um, they are referred to as the Siakar. And, and in the Siakar, you had these kings, these, the, uh, the Aryan kings, who just felt like it was time to start expanding the empire. Okay, fine. So they start doing that. And they reach a certain point where they're happy with what they have. And... Um, yeah, they're, they're, they don't feel like expanding any further. But what had happened was was that um, the queens, the reptilian queens, who are known as the Sata queens, um, they got quite interested in, in the whole process, and the kings started teaching it to the queens. Well, when the kings started becoming lazy and didn't want to go any further with the empire, the queens were like, hey, you know... Um, we got a taste for this. We want to take it even further. And the kings really didn't give a damn. They said, okay, whatever. You know, we're happy with what we have. Do whatever you want. And what happened was, um, as with any female in any species who is always the more, represents the more ambitious side of the species, uh, the queens took over the whole operation. And they became uh, the rulers of the whole expansion of the empire and ran the whole operation from A to Z. Um, as such, two things uh, happened along the way. In the expansion, and they just kept pushing it further out and out. It was never enough for them. Uh, they, you know, had the taste for blood and the taste for profit at the same time, and they became really good at it and had quite a knack for it. Uh, the two things that had happened along the way was this. Because of the expansion of the empire, they came across another much younger empire, but equally powerful and equally ferocious uh, and ambitious empire called the Canis Empire. And the Canis Empire <coughs> um, was a race or is a race of 
bipedal canines. All right. So you can see what's happening here at this point. You have bipedal reptilians and bipedal canines, dogs, okay? And they were also pinkish pout skin, all right? So once again, here's double the emphasis on the pale skin again. And uh, being that both of them were quite aggressive and territorial, they went to war with each other. And they were busy tearing each other apart. And finally it was realized the Camus feudal lords and the Sata queens finally sat down with each other and realized it was more profitable, emphasis on the word profit, it was more profitable to not fight with each other and to work together to expand the dual empires together as one. So they created this tentative peace even though they hated each other's guts. Now, in the just so that you know the linguistics ahead of time, um, the term canis, spelled K-A-N-U-S, ends up um, giving way to the term canine, and therefore the perception of what a dog is, and, and by extension cannibal, as in cannibalism. Because here you have a situation where the Canis feudal lords had an elite group of warriors called the Dukes, spelled D-K. And they were known as the Dukes of War. Later on, Shakespeare adopts this term, and the term Duke becomes mispronounced as the term dog. And this is how the word dog becomes associated with the term canis and therefore canine. Um, it is these same individuals that end up giving birth to the um, werewolf mythology, which I'll explain in a moment, too. But this um, collaboration between uh, the Sata Queens and the Canis Feudal Lords all right, is the beginning of what we later become known as the two-party system. This is the beginning of the two-party system. And, of course, as such, there is upper management, which is what the Sata Queens represented, the Reptilians, the Arians, and then there's middle management, which is the Canis Feudal Lords, uh, the ones who are in charge of actually going out and doing the dirty deed. And so this is how the agreement was made. Now, here they are together, expanding the empire further, and sure enough, lo and behold, they come across our backwater system on the outer rim of the solar system, uh, the outer, outer rim of our galaxy. And they find it, and instantly it is realized that we have a ton of natural rich resources that are truly valuable and irreplaceable. And immediately the entire solar system becomes a um, prized possession of every Canis feudal lord who wants to take over the system and, you know, basically strip mine every damn planet in this solar system for their own purposes. Well, as with every criminal organization and every corporation, you're always going to have this um, battle going on behind the scenes in terms of vying for power. Each of the Canis feudal lords uh, went to war 
for control of this solar system. Okay. Now, the one who was favored above all by the Sitar queens was one particular Canis feudal lord uh, known as King Anu. Okay. Now, King Anu, with the backing of the reptilian queens, was given everything he needed to go and slaughter the competition and get rid of everybody else. With him left standing, naturally, he was given the blessing of the queens to take over the solar system and start strip mining the whole thing. Now, keep in mind, too, that just so that you understand the perspective of a solar system, someone once asked me, how do you explain the whole um, extraterrestrial issue, um, the whole thing with alien contact? And I turned around and I told him, um, very simple, I explain it through the venue of real estate. And they were caught off guard. They weren't expecting that answer. And they're like, what do you mean, real estate? I mean, very simply. It's all about economics. It's all about real estate. It's all about profit. Okay? And that's the only reason why you, me, and the next-door neighbor actually exist to this day, because uh, we serve a purpose in terms of generating a profit for those corporations. Once that purpose is worn out, there will be no more reason for us to exist anymore. Um, and that will be the end of the human race. So in keeping with that idea of everything can be explained through the platform of real estate and real estate investing, it must be understood that the the term solar system is a very sterile, generic, scientific term. It doesn't really get into the grist of how a solar system is supposed to be seen. A solar system is supposed to be understood as a kingdom. Plain and simple, Real Estate 101 is supposed to be seen, each and every solar system is a kingdom unto itself. And every planet, okay, and every planet, asteroid belt, or whatever body or entity exists in there, is part of that kingdom. And as such, there is always going to be one particular planet out of all of them that is labeled as the throne of power or the seat of power. That such planet I'm referring to is, of course, Earth. So Earth is the throne of power of which all other planets by feudal law belong to in this solar system as part of one unified kingdom. Whenever you read any esoteric literature and you see the word kingdom or reign or domain uh, or territory, you know, anything like, like that, um, it's referring to a solar system, plain and simple. And whenever you see any esoteric terminology referring to the throne of power, it's referring to whatever particular planet in that kingdom is the central source of power in terms of politics and economics. Um, and each and every planet, uh, it's just seen as one big giant chunk of real estate broken down into, you know, smaller you know, smaller segments, you know, each planet being its own neighborhood, its own backyard, um, its own domain, its own territory. And each and every one of them have a valuable resource. And we're not just talking about gold, silver, or uh, diamonds, okay? We're also talking about secondary and tertiary gases that can be created from the primary gases of 
let's say, the outer gaseous giants that are also extremely valuable, okay? Um, and as such, um, certain planets in our solar system also became prime candidates for biological experiments as well, okay? Um, this is why to this day you see these anomalies um, hovering around the outer planets there because those are old um, laboratory experiments of an extraterrestrial origin that are still going on this, to this day. And this is where those strange anomalies come from in NASA photographs or if you see it through a telescope or some am amateur astronomer takes a photo of it. Um, it's not something that just showed up yesterday. It's not something brand new. It's something that's been there for half a million years and we're just finding it now. But um, in the discovery of this solar system uh, and the two-party system, obviously it was put into the hands of King Anu to get the whole operation going. Well, you know, the whole concept of upper management and middle management in terms of using corporate terms is relative to the environment you're in. So in this case, Anu is now seen as upper management of this solar system, and he has his own form of middle management. And middle management is what is infamously referred to in other forms of mythology as the Anunnaki, which, of course, when you break down the terminology, it's a direct reference to King Anu himself, meaning Anu's loyalists, Anu's faithful, okay? Um, which also goes a long way to explaining why the Nazis really liked the term Anunnaki because they saw themselves as loyalists and they saw Hitler as Anu. But um, the, uh, the thing is that um, he sends down his middle management team, okay, to the planet. And says, you know, we've got to stop mining these rich, valuable resources because the ultimate concept is that you've got to keep the queens happy, uh, the reptilian queens, they represent upper management of their own. They're not going to get their hands dirty. They want the Canis feudal lords to do it, okay? Um, and so the thing is you always have to keep the paycheck going to the queens to keep them happy. Nothing can stop that. Regardless of what kind of chaos breaks out, you have to keep that paycheck going to the queens to keep them happy. So... With that in mind, he sends down the Anunnaki to start mining the minerals and ores. And, of course, they themselves are, you know, through, through other uh, mythological explanations, are seen as, uh, you know, deities and gods themselves. And here they are doing slave labor, okay? Didn't exactly sit well with them. So after a while, um, they were getting bent out of shape. Um, the person who... Uh, King Anu put in charge because remember in this solar system he represents upper management. He wasn't going to get his hands dirty. So not only is the Anunnaki representing middle management but he also puts somebody in charge of middle management which is one of his two sons named Prince Enlil who is probably one of the most sadistic and heinous individuals to ever exist. Um, because he didn't want to be here in the first place. And he was forced to be here because by feudal law, Adam was the favored one, 
and his eldest son was to be put in charge. But Enlil didn't want to be here, and so this causes a big problem later on. Um, he goes back to his father and says, look, um, I'm about to have a rebellion here on my hands. Uh, the Anunnaki, they don't want to be doing the slave labor anymore. They're sick and tired of it. Which means the whole operation was going to be brought to a screeching halt, which means the queens weren't going to get the paycheck. So, in a panic, both um, um, uh, and King Anu himself decides, okay, look, calm down. We'll just we'll satisfy the whole strike altogether and get everybody back to work. I'm going to give you your other younger brother, Prince Ia, and your younger sister, Princess Ninhursag. I'm going to let you have them. And they're going to go down there, and they are going to be master geneticists. And they are in charge of creating the perfect obedient slave within the given biological environment. Now, from a psychological perspective, uh, this is of key importance here, and here's the reason why. You can't, you cannot, you cannot just bring in cheap slave labor from another kingdom, another planet, another solar system. Psychologically, it will never, ever work. There'll be a rebellion, there'll be a psychological schism, there'll be a meltdown uh, of, of um, you know, psychological proportions, um, it'll be a total revolt. You, you can't, you cannot bring slaves from another planet. It doesn't work. We see that here in our own history when um, you try to transplant Native Americans from their natural spot to a reservation or when you try to transplant in the African Moafa uh, and take people as slaves uh, from their own land and dump them in the United States and put them to work on a cotton plantation. Does it work? There was all manner of rebellion there and psycho psychological breakdowns. It, it, the whole system did not work. Um, same thing applied here. In order to have successful slaves, uh, you have to breed them from the given environment so that there is a form of biological and genetic symmetry. And therefore, there is no psychological snap, no breakdown, no emotional meltdown or anything like that. Plus, on top of that, you're creating them from the ground up, from scratch, from dust to dust, so to speak. And therefore, um, you can control them in a test tube in terms of how they're going to think and what they're going to respond to. And as such, herein comes Prince Ia and Princess Ninhursak, master geneticists, and therefore God, the creator God. Um, mind you, Enlil, the sadistic one who didn't want to be here, um, he tries to go back to his father and say, look, why don't you just put Ia in charge? I don't want to be here. And Anu is like, look, you're the eldest son by feudal law. You have to be here. I need you here. I don't care. Get down there, otherwise we're both going to be in hot water with the Reptilian Queens. So um, here you have this kind of like Shakespearean, Macbethian drama developing where the one who's in charge hates everyone and is sadistic to the core 
And the one who wants to be in charge, Prince Ia, who felt he should be in charge, is not allowed to be, and he has to take his marching orders from his brother. Um, and so you can see how this is starting, starts to develop here. Then um, Prince Ia and Nintersot, his sister, start going to work on trying to create the perfect obedient slave, smart enough to obey commands, but not too smart to think, therefore I am, and therefore gain consciousness and self-awareness. They didn't want that. They just wanted someone who was smart enough to flip levers, push buttons, and lift heavy loads out of the mining caves. Um, and that was a, a feat unto itself because the perfect specimen they felt was, of course, um, the primate ancestor. Um, problem was, you had to def it already had a strong upper body, but you had to develop the hindquarters because the hindquarters were weak, and this, of course, is where you get in anthropology um, all these uh, scientists to this day cannot explain how the pelvic bone in the fossil record uh, mysteriously was able to walk upright virtually overnight. Um, of course, in their own stupidity, they labeled it a mutation. It was not a mutation. Uh, it was genetic manipulation. The pelvic bone was allowed to stand up straight, and as such, the knees and the calves were altered, and the ankle bone was altered, and the beast could then stand up straight. It was given a stronger muscle mass in the hindquarters, whereas when you look at primates today, such as gorillas and chimpanzees, they are not able to stand up for very long because they don't have strong hindquarters at all. So this is the difference. And they were having all sorts of failures, no success at all. Prince is getting frustrated. And then one day, his sister, Ninhursag, calls him over. He says, um, come here, I want to show you something. I think I've done something here. And sure enough, from the bottom of the test tube comes finally a successful experiment that is able to stand upright and take orders and obey commands successfully. And that creation becomes known as the Adapa. Now, linguistically, Adapa it is very important to understand. Ad, A-D, is a reference to mud and clay, therefore a creature of the earth. And Apa, A-P-A, ends up becoming mispronounced as the word ape, A-P-E, in reference to primate. Um, but it's a word that really has nothing to do with primates, okay? It is just simply a word that means... Um, Ape-like abilities, the ability to obey commands and mimic orders, and that's it. So here you have a word, adapa, that means, um, you know, creature of the earth, the perfect obedient slave who can obey commands. And that's where that term comes from. Now, at that point, knowing that it was a successful creation, they start mass producing them, all right, um, through genetic breeding programs. Okay, of course, producing the perfect obedient slave generation after generation. Enlo starts putting them to work right away. Now, Enlo, who hates being here, hates the Adapas, hates the beast. And as such, being the sadistic bastard that he is, intentionally works them into the ground and kills them off through, slave, through some of the most heinous and despicable 
slave labor environments that you couldn't even imagine. Just killing them off in droves, working them to death, literally. And, of course, this is creating more and more friction for Ia, Prince Ia, who is creating them. Because he creates them, and then Enlil kills them off. And he's beginning to acquire a certain affinity for the Adapa because they are his creations. The significance to the relationship between Prince Ia and Princess Ninhursag is this, though. Um, there's always been this ridiculous, long-standing, male chauvinist and feminist argument about God being male or female. Well, here's the bottom line. Um, it's Princess Ninhursag who actually created the beast. So it's a woman that created man. But it's a man, her brother, who was in charge of the whole operation, who gave it his seal of approval. So the definition of God is the yin and yang, male and female energy, brother and sister, working together as scientists. That's the definition of God. Um, as time goes on, the thing is, uh, Prince Ia is caught in the bind. He feels that um, he has to obey his brother because, remember, even though Prince Ia is referred to as a master geneticist, his brother, Prince Enel, is referred to as uh, master of the skies uh, because he has his own sky armada, which, of course, nowadays, because of George Lucas, we would refer to as star destroyers, okay, master of the sky. And so Enlil has the whole military behind him. But Prince Ia, in his own conniving way, decides that he's finally fed up with what his brother's doing, killing off the Adapas, and he decides to um, do something that truly um, puts his neck on the line. Because there was a cardinal law laid down by Enlil that said, no beast, no beast at all, would ever be taught any kind of ancient knowledge in terms of where they come from, who they are. They would never be elevated above the status of a slave. And therefore, they would never be educated on any real knowledge. Okay? This, of course, is where you get that, that comic book story about the Garden of Eden and the Book of Genesis, etc., and so forth. But um, at that point in time, he decides to break the law and says, screw it. If, he is, if it's okay for Enlil to slaughter the beasts, then I, I, being the one who created them, am going to take it upon myself to take a select group of anointed ones and take them into a secret area, and I am going to start educating them on forbidden knowledge, and I am going to start elevating them above and beyond the status of an Adapa slave. And I am going to tell them exactly where they come from. And I am going to give them forbidden knowledge. Therein lies the beginning of what we now refer to as a secret society. Prince Ia taking a certain group of Adapas, known as the Anointed Ones, into a cave and actually using the brainwashing technology of the reptilians in reverse to actually 
give the Adapas a crash course education on the entire cosmos, the universe, the galaxy, the solar system, and their place in the whole thing, and what's been going on. Now, by anointing them, by becoming the special ones, they become known as two things. They become known as the Yesu, and they become known as the Adam, this Yesu. So, of course, um, this answers the age-old question, you know, the, the whole thing with Adam and Eve, so to speak. Was it just Adam and Eve, or was there a group of people? Well, it was a group. And the term Adam, or the Adam, is a reference to this anointed group of Yesu, who were elevated with forbidden knowledge um, by their teacher, Prince Ea. And as such, um, he basically, uh, using the reptilian technology, to flick a switch in the cave, the light comes on, and they get blasted with all of this cosmological knowledge. The point is, they weren't learning fast enough. And Prince Ea knew he was running out of time because he was trying to prolong it as much as he could, but he knew eventually he was probably going to be caught. And so he decided, he went to his sister, Princess Ninhursag, and said, look, um, we got to do something to speed this along. So they both decide to go to their friends, um, another race of beings known as the Ankils. Now, the Ankils, and there's a whole boatload of linguistics to talk about here, the Ankils were a race of beings that can best be described as avionic or bird-like race of beings that were both physical and non-physical at the same time. Um, the best representation that has ever been depicted on screen is in the movie The Abyss by James Cameron, the extraterrestrial beings depicted there would be an excellent rendition of what the Ankeels look like. Transparency, which is the best definition of something that is physical and non-physical at the same time. These beings, these Ankeels, these avionic bird-like beings, were so evolved, they were non-physical, but they also liked, you know, uh, keeping their toe in the third dimension as well, remaining somewhat physical. And the reason they had gone to them is because this particular race of being held the one secret genetic ingredient that um, Ea and Ninhursag did not have, and that was the gene for passion. As such, um, they take the gene for passion from the Ankiels. And now, the name Ankiel, what's important about that? Um, the, the term Ankiel, spelt A-N-K-H, E-L-E-S, eventually becomes mispronounced as the word Angels, as in Los Angeles. Okay? And therefore, the term Angel becomes mispronounced as the word Angel. So, the word Angel is an extraterrestrial term referring to the Ankiels. Now, the root word um, of Ankiels... Go ahead. Brother Smith, just... Briefly, while you're going into this dissertation, 
So this creation story that you're building on, is this the creation of mankind or is this is this the creation of all men on earth? This is the um the the creation of mankind. Okay. Okay. And you'll see um and very shortly you'll see where it splits off and becomes very different. Okay. Um Right now, I'm talking about something that is slightly the, um, it, it's two offshoots. You're talking about the Adapa and the Iesu, two different groups, all right? And, um, oh, yeah, I was saying, and the Ankiels. Um, the root word in Ankiel is Ankh, A-N-K-H. And, of course, this leads to the misspelling of O-N-K later on. What's quite interesting is that 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 object, that um, religious symbol that's referred to as the Ankh. Yeah. Um, there's to this day, I mean, people are keep, keep saying, "Oh, oh, the Ankh is an angel." Uh, no, it's not. Take a look at the Ankh again. It's the head of a bird, the wings of a bird, and the tail of a bird. It is a reference to the avionic bird-like race of beings called the Ankiels, which, of course, is where the word angel comes from anyway. Some so, would say that it's, some would say that the um, the shape of the Ankh is uh, a direct copy of the uh, womb, the uterus. That would also make sense, too. Yeah, because you have the womb, which would be the the top of the arc where you know life is created. Then the fallopian tubes on the side, and then mm-hmm. the birth canal. So it goes back into ancient Kemet symbology of the arc, meaning everlasting life. It would make sense because female anatomy is replicated over and over again throughout the entire cosmos. Yes. So, um, especially the reproductive organs. Um, whether it be a black hole, a wormhole, a stargate, or a hyperspace gateway, all of it represents a vagina. And the birthing process, um, the very act of reincarnation, going through a wormhole and coming out the other side and being reborn is going through the birthing canal. Indeed. Uh, The movie Poltergeist exemplified that. When the mother goes in to one side of the wormhole and follows through to rescue her daughter, comes out the other end of the wormhole, and uh, the symbolism is that it's her and her daughter, and she's holding on to her daughter, and both of them are covered in amniotic fluid as if they were just born again. So, I remember. That's a powerful symbolism there in the movie Poltergeist. Um, And that's been repeated over and over again. Um, Kenneth Branagh, when he did his his version of Frankenstein with Robert De Niro, uh, not only used lightning to create the beast, which represents the Temple of Solomon, but also used amniotic fluid, which represents um, the cat energy, the female principle, the feminine goddess energy, uh, female the birthing process. So he was using two symbolisms in that. Uh, 
the bolt of lightning, which represents the Temple of Solomon, and therefore the Moorish legacy, and the pool of amniotic fluid, which represents the Petri dish of life, and therefore the uterus. So, um, but with the relationship with the Ankeels, he takes the gene for passion, Princea, and, and puts it into the Iesu. Um, this propels the whole thing forward that much faster in terms of educating the beast that much quicker. And therefore, that much, knowledge, that much more knowledge can be plugged into them that much faster because now, now they have the true ability to see themselves as individuals and I think, therefore, I am and be self-aware. Um, and therefore, they were able to ingest the ancient knowledge that much quicker. Now, I mentioned the term before, Iesu, and also the term Adam. The term Iesu is an ancient term. It's well known in the region of Arabia, North Africa, and also Asia. Um, it is a term that also manifests itself as other linguistic versions of it, Isa and Asa um, are examples of that same term. Yesu, as the original term, becomes eventually mispronounced as Jesus, and Jesus becomes mispronounced as Jesus. So the term Jesus um, is a term that has no meaning unto itself. Um, so the Christians have been using the wrong term all along. Um, and his original name was Isa. And that wasn't even his real name. That was the name that was adopted for him by his mother and father because he was a major Christ. And as such, they used a variation of the term Iesu to name him, Isa. And uh, just as a side note in terms of understanding how far that terminology permeates throughout history. The term Adam, in association with the term anointed one or Iesu, stands in opposition to the term Adapa. Uh, I mentioned before what Adapa means, but Ad-Om, Adam, is the polar opposite of that. Ad still meaning clay and mud, but in this case, the second syllable is Om, Om. O-M or A-M, it doesn't matter how you spell it because vowels are just a crutch. You can switch the vowels around any way you want. It still comes out the same way. And therefore, OM is a reference to sound to frequency, the frequency necessary for awakening the beast so that the beast can elevate itself from slave to master. And this is how they become known as the anointed ones, the Yesu, the special ones. Um, at the same time that this was going on now, Prince Ia, because he became associated with the Ankiels, for which the root term is the Ankh, collectively, um, he himself became known as the Ankh, or in variation, the variation of that term is Anki or Enki. And this is how the term Enki comes into existence, which sort of replaces the term Prince Ia along the way. And he becomes known as the Ankh unto himself by association because he is the one that gives them the gene for passion. 
Um, at the same time that that's going on, he's still feeling a sense of um, empathy towards the Adapas that can't be anointed and are still being killed in droves left and right. Um, with that in mind, he takes a walk through the so-called Garden of Eden where the breeding program is taking place. And he goes and talks with the Adapas when nobody's looking. And he asks him and says, look, um, you know, you know that certain time of the month when you're, or so to speak, when you're allowed to um, actually enjoy, enjoy each other's company and mate with each other, you know, that one and only time when you're actually allowed to have a smile on your face and actually enjoy your existence for all of 15 minutes. And, um, and they start thinking about it, and they're like, hmm, yeah. Um, well, he points out to him, and he says, look, he says, don't listen to my brother. He says, you guys can do that and have sex whenever you want. Now, this was a huge leap forward for them to comprehend this because up until this point, the genetic breeding program was very clear in that each male and each female had a specific mark put on them. And the mark from the male and the mark from the female had to match. And only that male was allowed to mate with that female if they had the same exact mark. This guaranteed the production of the perfect obedient slave offspring generation after generation over and over again um, because it was built into the genetic code for them to obey commands. Um, now here he comes along telling them, look, uh, you, you can do it with whoever you want. You can mate with whoever you want, have sex with whoever you want. Forget about the rules. My brother's a sadistic pig. He's going to kill you anyway. And it's the only thing that gives you happiness. You can do it all the time. And, of course, they look at each other, and all of a sudden a smile comes across their face because they finally get it. Well, here's the other side of that. That genetic mating program, okay, <clears throat> with the so-called certain mark on the male and female that had to match up, all right, this becomes... Uh, the foundation of what we now refer to today as the institution of marriage. So, when you see these lunatics out there who are trying to create laws to define the so-called sanctity of marriage, you might want to educate them on the fact that marriage, by definition, and unto its own history, uh, represents slavery and genetic breeding program because that mark on the on the arm or the leg whatever the mark was evolved into all these other things that we mark each other with today wedding rings engagement rings uh, the barcodes that were put on uh, the Jewish prisoners in Auschwitz and Dachau as well as the very chip today that is being intended for implanting into every infant that is born today. This is what that whole breeding program has evolved into. It evolved into not only the institution of marriage, but also the ability to 
mark the beast once again with a very chip or a barcode. So that's also something to think about when you hear these people complaining um, that uh, gay people should not be allowed to get married. Well, first of all, I don't know why gays would want to get married anyway. It's, marriage is a living hell to begin with. But if they want to, have at it. Let them do it, okay? Because there is no sanctity of marriage because the institution of marriage is a fraud to begin with because of where it comes from and where it started. <laughs> Launch the bombs. But um, with that comes the halt of the work. And on the coattails of that, here comes Enwell, wondering why the work has stopped. He goes into a panic. He marches into the Garden of Eden. Dead silence. Nothing is going on. No work's getting done. Where the hell is everybody? So he goes looking for the Adapas, and all of a sudden, he hears a noise behind a bush. And uh, he goes and pulls the bush away, and sure enough, there's a male Adapa who is fully erect and aroused, and he just uh, finished having sex with one of the female Adapas. Now, not only is he doing it off schedule, but the mark on him does not match the mark on the female. Well, now the gig is up, and Enlil is flipping mad. And he knows who did it. And he sends out the decree to, he sends out a decree to hunt down his brother because he knows Ia did it. Well at this point word gets back to Ia about what happened. And Ia packs his bag and gets ready to leave because he's got to get out of town and leave the solar system. But he does take um some of the um Iesu, the anointed ones, with him. Not all of them could go, though. Some of them actually wanted to stay behind and carry on the good fight. Uh, so those that decided to stay behind, um, you know, is that they take on the, the mantle of being the Adam, the living library, so to speak. And at this point in time, because the genetic breeding program is so messed up, now Enlo's going on a killing spree left and right, just slaughtering everybody he can get his hands on. Yesu, the Anointed One, the Adapas, anyone. Because now he knows they've been getting taught forbidden knowledge, uh, breeding programs botched up, and all chaos is breaking out at this point because Enlil is going on a killing spree. Um, Eoc escapes with the some of the Anointed Ones, the Adam, and supposedly takes them to the Pleiadian star system, and of course, continues his experiments there. Allegedly, this is what evolves into what's known as the Pleiadians, okay, furthering his experiments there. Now, the one that stayed behind, the Adam, um, they knew very well. They didn't stand a chance against Enlil's Sky Armada. With the type of firepower he had, uh, he was just wiping everybody out in droves left and right. So before they all got killed off, the Adam decided, or the Asu, they realized, look, we got to stay alive. We can't fight this battle. Uh, we need to retreat so that we can carry on the legacy of 
the true history and true knowledge so that it doesn't get lost. So they begin um, the original policy and actually create the original policy of what we know today as guerrilla warfare. And they go running for the mountains, running for the hills, running for the forests to hide. And as such, in that guerrilla warfare tactic, they become the masters of stealth. And to this day, the atom never disappeared. Uh, the atom still exists, um, but we don't refer to them as the atom. We refer to them by other names. We call them the Sasquatch. We call them the Yahweh. We call them the Yeti. We call them the Orangutan. We call them the Berserker. We call them the Green Man. We call them the Abominable Snowman. Um, that is the atom that has survived to this day. All right, Brother Rick. I don't want to um, cut in between your dissertation, but we normally pause to do our 11-11 meditation. Okay. So we're right at that mark. I want to, um, my brother's line just dropped. I want to turn his line back on. Red, you there? Yep. Yes, indeed. So, family, this is uh, this meditation serves of very high importance. Again, we say we're going to dedicate it to our our brother, Dr. Blair, he lost his son very recently, so we want to send him love and light. This is also on the cusp of the new moon, which comes in tomorrow. It will be the first new moon of what we consider to be the new year, you know, um, the rebirthing of all things, which occurs in the spring. So we want to make note of that, that, that moon that will be coming in tomorrow. So for the family that normally follow the patterns during this time, you know, we do our invocations. I've heard all of the arguments, you know, pertaining to that. But for those who want to remain steadfast and just do their normal rituals or what have you during this particular time, please feel free uh, and definitely, you know, send your energies towards the renewal of things, making everything fresh. Okay, so we ask you to find yourself in a uh, place, preferably all black. Okay, just, you know, somewhere that's very dark. You could turn off your computer monitor without actually cutting off your computer. Find yourself seated straight, feet flat to the floor with your palms on the edge of your knees, your palms facing upwards to the ceilings. Index fingers and thumbs touching, forming a pyramid, tip of the tongue touching the roof of the mouth, inhaling from the nose, pulling from the abdominals, eyes closed, exhaling out of the mouth, okay? And we are going to be meditating to the mantras of Omni Padme Om, which stands for the jewel and the lotus, the perfect balance between the masculine and the feminine principle family. And we will see you on the other side. Good morning, 
One of the main benefits from an active third eye, or pineal gland, is the ability to have lucid dreams. This elixir of life is now available in two ounces for an amazing low price of $49.99. Our bodies are our temples, and Soul Gold Liquid Drops is essential to our transformation. Order now. Go to www.soulgoldbiz.com today. Monumental episode, uh, brother Rick. Yes. Because we are working with a time restriction, we broadcast until midnight, and then we do a little extra after the stream. The live stream is cut. I want to kind of fast forward into the whole Moors in Europe situation, mm-hmm. being that that was the initial um, title of the show. So I do want to feed the family with information dealing with the research that you've done on the Moors. So right. if we could, um, yeah, if we could go into that and then, you know, go into the Americas and then let Peter pick up with uh, Drew Ali and the research that he's done, that'll be okay. excellent. And we do have a we have a lot of hands in the call queue as well. People, uh, family, the listeners, the audience, they want to add on and ask some questions as well. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, I was getting to that point where. Um, I was bringing it up to speed on that as well because everything I've been talking about has been, it serves a significant purpose as a foundation to understanding the um, um, the power and the relevance of the Moorish legacy overall globally um, throughout um, the cosmological history of the earth and with the um, with everything that had taken place at that point in time, what had happened was essentially just condensing it up to a certain point. Um, there is um, the issue that when all when all was said and done, um, there was a ultimately a quarantine placed on the solar system, locking everything down. Everybody else, all of the competition was kicked out. Um, the in um, and so the Moorish legacy. Uh, this is how this this is how it comes into existence. Um, the Ankiels saw what happened, okay, and they realized, okay, um, we got to give the Adam a fighting chance. Uh, we need to do something. Because they were basically hanging out in the wings there, watching this whole scenario go down, and they realized something has to be done. Okay, now that the gene for passion, which relates directly to the Moorish legacy, essentially, I explain this in symbolic terms: the gene for passion funneled through the Temple of Solomon, and when it came out the other side it became known as the Passion of the Christ. And that's how it translates. The gene for passion is the Passion of the Christ. And so the Ankiels, using that gene for passion, knowing 
that it's still there in the gene pool and couldn't be squelched by the opposing team, um, they begin to influence this brand new uh, revolution in thoughts, in mind, and in spirit with the Passion of the Christ and the Temple of Solomon. That rudimentary beginning becomes known as the Moorish legacy in North Africa. Okay. Now, this, of course, evolves into the Egyptian university system as a way of giving the human race a fighting chance to evolve and remember their own true history and have a fighting chance against the psychological warfare and the system of oppression that was put in place by the white Masonic elite, a.k.a. the Greys, the ones that they report to. Um, and, of course, you know, symbolically, the opposing team represents the walking dead. Um, and as such, you have this spiritual element of the Moorish legacy uh, represented by the lamp of illumination. And on the opposite side, you have the Masonic agenda engaging in psychological warfare against the passion of the Christ via the iron hand of uh, iron fist of oppression, and the iron fist of oppression stands in opposition to the lamp of illumination. So uh, this is what's going on here. Now, the question is, what the hell happened with the Palestine in, op in opposition to the Moorish legacy? How did this Masonic element come into existence here? Just so that that's understood, I'm going to give an abbreviation here to bring it up to speed so that Peter can then take it over and go with Noble Drew Ali there. Um, during the, the whole shakedown and the quarantine of the solar system, just prior to the Ankiels stepping in and influencing the evolution of the Moorish legacy as a spiritual revolution against the oppression, um, what was happening there was that while that was going on, the Greys, who represent the corporate bean counters, didn't like the fact that this spiritual revolution was being fostered. So they go into that environment and they create once again a sense of segregation and division, uh, an insurgency of their own. And they start whispering in the ears of certain individuals who would listen. And they start inflating their ego um, in opposition to the passion of the Christ, uh, the gene for passion, because um, they know they can't access it. They know they can't get to it. They know they are forbidden to touch it because they represent the walking dead. But they can attack everything around it, including creating this thing called the Masonic Ego. And therefore, the Masonic Ego can be used to destroy um, the gene for passion or the lamp of elimination by brainwashing and mind control. As such, a certain segment broke away from the Moorish legacy and the family of man and the people of color and hue, the sun-kissed people of earth, and they were brainwashed with the idea that they were better than everybody else around them, that they should be the kings, they should be the rulers, dominion over everything, 
And as such, they were brainwashed with the idea that in order to make themselves better, they had to look like their creator, in this case, the greys, pale-skinned, walking zombies. So they began to experiment on themselves in such heinous ways uh, to the point where they actually bled the color right out of their skin and became this freakish um, pigmentation with no color at all. And therein lies the beginning of the pale skin. Okay? Um, and this was all plotted out by the Greys in retaliation against the Moorish legacy, against the Unkeels, against the spiritual evolution, because they don't want anybody waking up. They want the iron hand of oppression. They want the Masonic ego to take over. And by creating this insurgency, they left the family of man in Africa, no choice, but to look at this group of miscreants who were very warlike and turned their back on Mother Nature and Mother Earth and were destroying everything around them. And they left the family of man, no choice, but to round them all up and haul them up through the deserts of Arabia with their pale skin, mind you, being burned by the deserts of Arabia, and dump them in the only transcontinental prison available at the time that nobody wanted, because it was a dead wasteland, which we now refer to as Europe, which was named after the African gone queen, Europa, and left them there. Good place to leave them, too, because the geographical boundaries ensured that they would stay there and not go anywhere else. That's exactly what the Greys wanted, though, because now they had these pale-skinned abominations isolated with no choice psychologically but to gravitate towards the Greys and listen to them further for solace. And they massaged their ego even further and said, look, um, you want to get even with the family of men? I mean, you know, because they were really going headlong into the brainwashing here now and the psychological manipulation. And like, look at what your dark-skinned Moorish brothers and sisters did to you. They banished you. They threw you out, which is really not the truth at all, but they manipulated it psychologically that way to make it look like that. And so they're like, look, um, we know you want to get even. And herein lies the beginning of what's referred to as the ancient vendetta. The greys go to these pale-skinned outcasts and abominations, and they say, look, we will give you everything you want. We will give you all the technology you want, all the power you want, all the economic might that you want. And we will make you the kings of this planet. And we will give you everything you need with two stipulations in that agreement. And this is when these original Palskins made a deal with the devil. And the Greys went to them and said, we'll give you everything you need to take over the planet the two agreements. One, we want you to go out there and we want you to destroy the family of men by every means necessary. And two, from this day forward, your offspring and future generations belong to us. Henceforth, the alien abduction phenomena. Okay? Um, and that's how that comes into existence is because of that original deal that was made. And this is how Europe, all of a sudden, mysteriously, comes on the scene with 
a vendetta like you would not believe, and a bloodlust and a warmongering spirit to take over and destroy every dark-skinned civilization that ever existed. And this results in a three-pronged campaign against the people of color and hue and against the Moorish legacy, with the deal being the ancient vendetta always. And that three-pronged campaign became known as the Native American Genocide in North and South America, the African Moafa in Africa, and the Chinese open-door policy that destroyed Asia. Three-pronged campaign against the Moorish legacy. As such, that three-pronged campaign also made it possible to destroy the Egyptian university system um, much more effectively as well. So, um, this is what's um, this is what's bringing it up to speed here now. Against that, what you have is the evolution of the Moorish legacy via um, the seal of the covenant, aka the Christ spelled K-R-S-T. It is not spelled C-H-R-I-S-T. That's some stupidity that was invented by the Christians when they tried to feed that garbage to everyone that um, it's Jesus' last name, etc., and so forth. No, it's nobody's last name at all. It's a title that is held in high regard and only meant for major prophets, major prophets. There are plenty of minor prophets out there, too, like Joseph, father of Jesus, who served as his mentor and teacher. Um, but the, um, the minor prophets are also known as master teachers, and in many cases they are referred to as swift angels as well. Um, in fact, the person who wrote the biography of Noble Drew Ali is himself referred to as a swift angel, Elihu Catlett Bay or Pleasant Bay, I should say, Elio Pleasant Bay. And um, the term Swift Angel is a reference to these ancient teachers who have a tremendous longevity to live quite a long time and serve the purpose of being a minor prophet and therefore serve as the brick and mortar in between each and every one of the major prophets waiting for them to come along and teach them. Um, Swift Angel Gabriel, who in academic history, is only known as Angel Gabriel, is an example of one of those teachers who actually lived long enough to be connected to both Joseph and Jesus as well as Muhammad within a 400-year period. So um, that that's a significant factor right there. Um, the term Christ, K-R-S-T, represents the word seal, and therefore seal of the covenant, and the word covenant, which relates to the word coven in many ways, is a reference to a people, a nation, a demograph. And that's why they are called the seal, a.k.a. Christ, of the covenant, because they are meant for that demograph or that group of people, in which case they are not interchangeable with each other. You couldn't use, let's say, for instance, you couldn't use Muhammad to the Israelites, okay, you couldn't use Buddha with the Arabians. That wasn't going to work, okay? Um, you, know, you, you couldn't have used uh, Muhammad for black Americans. Uh, that wouldn't have worked either, So, uh, you know, or, or Jesus, for that matter. Um, they're not interchangeable. They are 
via extraterrestrial means and um, by cosmo cosmological programming in the gene pool of the human race, they are programmed to be injected into a particular environment, a particular demograph. Noble through Ali was meant for the, the black Moorish nation here in the United States, okay? Specifically meant for that and only that. Um, now, what's also significant to understand, and then I'll stop here, is that each and, um, each and every one of these Christs, of which the original one was Horus, the first virgin birth, um, each one of them represents um, building another wing onto the Temple of Solomon, which is why these major prophets, these Christs, are also referred to as architects, which is important to understand as well because you go back and you look at stupidity of Christian propaganda and the garbage they spew about Jesus is that, oh, he was a carpenter and he learned his carpentry skills from his father. Uh, no, he didn't. His father was not a carpenter. His father was a minor prophet and a major teacher at that. Okay? He himself was an architect. Now, the word carpenter and architect are one and the same in many ways, and this is where that ridiculous propaganda came from. Okay? Uh, but no, he was not a physical carpenter. Alright? Uh, and, and, of course, um, you have to remember, these Christ figures were well-to-do people, okay? They were not slumming it around. Um, they may have found wisdom in reneging on their riches and their wealth and associating with the poverty-stricken, but they themselves were not poor, so it is stupid to see any Christ figure of any kind dressed in some stupid robe or rags or anything like that. That is just unheard of. No Christ, no major prophet would ever be caught dead in rags or looking like a slob or dressing, you know, like a bum. But they love depicting Jesus that way all the time, and that could not be farther from the truth. If you take the time to look at the original black and white photos of Noble Drew Ali, Noble Drew Ali always looked immaculate. He always dressed immaculate. Uh, he never looked like a slob and certainly didn't look like a carpenter either, but he was definitely a master architect and therefore a major prophet and therefore a Christ. So... This is what's important to understand. Buddha, Abraham, uh, Muhammad, uh, Isa, a.k.a. Jesus, um, Mithra, Horus, Noble Drali. Um, this is what's important. Each and every one of them represents a building block, another wing being built onto the Temple of Solomon. Starting with the original African god-man, Hiram Abiff, the original master architect who actually knew and was hired by King Solomon. So, um, I will stop it there.
Indeed. All right. See the moon. Yes. Okay. Uh, do you care to pick up where Brother Rick Smith left, left off? Well, Noble Drew Ali was um, somebody I encountered during my research of, of time experiments. Because the one thing you have to remember about time experiments is my friend Dr. David Anderson, uh, who's a time control scientist, says is we may find out history, including all that history he's just uh, shared with us, uh, may turn out to be uh, an experiment. Like uh, that history as, as depicted, or any history as depicted, is subject to... Uh, Cancellation, much like you cancel a TV show. Anyway, that's just a little context. But uh, it was I, how I discovered Noble Drew Ali was through my research in time because the Moorish Science Temple, which was um, allegedly involved in these uh, parallel dimensional experiments in Ongsat, New Jersey, was founded by a man named Noble Drew Ali, who many people if not most of your audience are familiar with. And he was very special because he was uh, went to Egypt and, and was met by these masters. He was just traveling to Egypt. I'm not sure why he went there. But uh, when he went there, he was met by these uh, masters who uh, were waiting for him, and they tested him by putting him in the uh, Great Pyramid blindfolded, led him up there into the... I believe it was the king's chamber, said, find your way out. You know, if you don't, uh, you know, you will die. And they don't expect you to make it. But he did not only made it, he ended up between the paws of the sphinx, which was very symbolic. They couldn't find him. They finally found him between the paws of the sphinx. And um, he was then initiated into the history of the Morris legacy, which he then took to America to teach, to teach uh, and he taught the true history of the Moors, and he got quite a following, as many people know, uh, which became so large and so big that it became a genuine, uh, perceived, if not genuine, threat to the uh, domestic tranquility of the the white, so-called white race. And who was on there but J. Edgar Hoover, who was the, you know, Forming the FBI at that point, and it's a huge FBI file on Noble Drolla. You can get um, most of it online, and he was very closely watched because he had such a big following. And you'll find when Rick was talking about the Masons, and what they did is is they sought to destroy his popularity or minimize it by lampooning him with the first nationally syndicated radio show in history. The only thing that was syndicated before this radio show um, was football games. And this was the, the TV show known as an Amos and Andy, which was there to caricaturize and lampoon uh, people of color who, you know, were – not portrayed as serious human beings, highly comical, 
highly comical human beings who had a, a Masonic Lodge, which they called the, uh, what was it, the Order of the Knights of the Sea or the Noble Order of the Knights of the Sea. I think I don't remember the name, but it was, they had their own little Masonic Lodge and they had uh, the congregation were called Sardines and they had the Kingfish. That's where the name Kingfish came from. He was the Kingfish and, you know, the Holy Mackerel. I mean, they, they and this was this was the Lampoon, and they even had one of their shows on the radio had uh, Ali Benda, which was a direct take-up. He was a stargazer, and he was put in jail, uh, much like Noble Drew Ali was eventually put in jail before he passed away. And so he was a fascinating character. And what's what's one of the most fascinating aspects is, you know, growing up uh, in the '60s like I did, and in, uh, in in the region. Uh, in California where the Black Panthers were, you know, certainly getting a lot of press. They took over the Capitol building in Sacramento. And they, but, you know, we heard of the Black Muslims. Muhammad Ali made the uh, Black Muslims very uh, famous uh, in the sports world, made them very recognized. And, of course, Malcolm X was already making headlines as well. But what people don't often realize is that uh, the uh, Nation of Islam came, its roots go back to Noble Drew Ali, who uh, when he died, there was quite a schism and a fighting for his legacy, which was given to a, a man named uh, Wally Fard or uh, Wallace Fard or Farad. He had different names, and he has a huge FBI file, which you can read. And he, he wasn't even black. He was melanated. He's Polynesian. And he turned over his legacy. He, he opted out and left it over to uh, Elijah Muhammad. And that's where Malcolm X got involved. And what we have today as Louis Farrakhan is, is a derivative of that. But it, they don't mention Noble Drury or the Moorish legacy. It's the nation of Islam, and it's uh, got a very the interesting, colorful history prior to that that was, you know, changed and morphed into something else rather than what it re originally was. So th there's a lot more that can be said and read about Noble Drilly. There's quite, Elihu Pleasant Bay has written a, a biography of uh, Noble Drilly, which is very, uh, very thorough and very interesting. That's just a little bit on Noble Drury. I don't know if you probably know much about him, but if you have any specific questions, I, I will try to answer. Well, I want to tap more into the mystical aspect that, um, you know, that you tapped into Drew Ali and um, the Moorish legacy, you know, uh, Rick Smith talks about the reincarnation of prophets and things of that nature. So I don't know if you have anything in that realm that you wanted to add on. Well, I, I would look at life as a, oh, and this is what I've discovered through all my meanderings of my research. Life is, we, we talk about esoteric studies and prophets. Anything that is life fits into a, a master template. Which which is um, depicted in the, the by the Jews in the Kabbalah or the you know or the Muslims and Christians have their own version of Kabbalah. 
but the Kabbalah can be shown to be an imitation of DNA when you take down the structure. So all of the components in the tree of life are self-reflective in the DNA of any life form. So when you see the different aspects, which are also seen in the planets, Rick was talking about the solar system. Well, the solar system is a, is a self-contained entity. The, all those planets in the solar system can be found corresponding to the DNA. So you have if so when you want to talk about a prophet, a prophet is going to be an iteration of a life point. We call it a DNA point if we want. So prophets like just like if you have a jungle or a garden, you're going to have different manifestations. You're going to have some female manifestations, some male, some warlike, some peace-like, everything under the sun. So the prophets are the iteration of that principle, you know, which the, the Jewish people would call teparet, might be pronounced tipareth, teparet which is uh, equates to the sun, equates to the uh, resurrection, the Christ principle he was talking about. And, and that's just the awakening of the, uh, of the I am that I am. That's the self-aware. How we got, he gave a very detailed, and I mean, he's talking about histories of millions upon millions of years there that's, consolidated into a sort of a storybook format obviously history is much more uh, what do you call it detailed and complicated and all that but you you have all these different you know life how how we got into this mess uh is life iterating itself and reiterating itself and coming into all these convoluted Iterations, it's like a like a labyrinth or a maze. So we end up, and by looking through that, um, we have hidden wisdom in our DNA. We have, and now that they've discovered junk DNA, that creates a lot of implications. There's a lot of there's a lot of angles one can look at life from, but DNA is is a very good way to look at it, just allegorically. And then when you, you know, when magicians and uh, philosophers and theologians put it into a tree of life, it tends to be the most simplistic format. What I've discovered about the tree of life is my recent studies in, uh, have taken me to Romania and the ancient Dacian civilization in Transylvania, which is where... Uh, mankind retreated to in 10,000 AD because of the ice ages. And I, I was just taught the, the Dacian tree of life, which is a expanded version. And you can see from their tree of life that, that the Jewish tree of life or Kabbalah is a snippet of what theirs was. It can be graphically demonstrated uh, geometrically. So this gets into... I mean, these are things that I'm just sort of touching upon, uh, which would weave their way into what, what Rick was talking about, but it would also give different perspectives. So when we talk about the prophets, 
with many prophets, many people iterating truths, of which Noble Drew Ali was a particularly important and spectacular one in terms of our cultural society that we're living with today because it's so adamantly ignored and uh, over overridden and over overrun. Just like we have in uh, Major League Baseball, we have an antitrust exemption, which creates a lot of problems that people don't see because they like to watch baseball and it makes them happy or whatever it does for them. But in the same way with, with what I was talking about the Montauk Indians earlier, but with the Moorish legacy, we have like an antitrust exemption, although they are acknowledged in the courts and there's some unfortunate situations in the courts uh, concerning them, they're not given their proper due. So I hope I've addressed your question. There is um, something I can I can answer that as well. Um, I was just thinking of it, you know, something jogged my mind when Peter was explaining that. Um, and, and I think this this may be what you might have brought up before in the question you were asking is. Um, in reference to DNA and reincarnation, which plays a significant role in the evolution of the major prophets, the evolution of um, a civil rights movement over a tremendous period of time. Because um, uh, most people see civil rights as, oh, it was the 1960s, it lasted for one decade and it's over. Well, that's untrue. Um, you know, it, uh, you know what culminated in the 1960s started 100 years before in the 1860s, and in that 100-year period, what culminated there in that 100 years started half a million years ago or more. Um, so what you have going on here in terms of the awakening of the DNA is Mother Earth essentially cosmos or whoever you know um stepping in with her own sense of humor so to speak okay and saying well okay you might have gotten rid of noble drew lee and his partner marcus garvey because the two of them worked together at the time as sort of a dynamic duo in the 1920s. You might have gotten rid of them then, but here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to bring them back. <laughs> because in the process of reincarnation, um, you really can't get rid of them, spiritually speaking. So here you have Noble Julie and Marcus Garvey. Uh, they came back in the form of uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X to continue the job that they did not finish, okay? Um, what's also interesting there in terms of reincarnation is that um, you'll also see that same relationship taking place down the line um, with, let's say, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. The job wasn't done so they come back in the form of JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. And the job still wasn't done. So later on, 
you have that same relationship between Mandela and de Klerk in South Africa. And this is how the process of reincarnation works with the DNA and the spiritual awakening in that DNA helix. It's constantly used as part of the revolution and um, the, the, uh, the relationship between civil rights and the paranormal and spirituality, there's no difference there. A spiritual revolution is a civil rights revolution and vice versa. Let me point so, something out. Let me point something out. And right now, we, we have Pluto and Capricorn in the, in the last, and this means revolution in uh, institutions, governments, organizations, religions. The last time we had this was uh, during the time of the Revolutionary War. Pluto, you know, Cap, uh, Pluto is usurping, purging, and it was purging uh, the tyranny of, of of England. Now, we can look back as Americans, particularly if we're white Americans and looking through that lens and say, wow, it was great, we got off the yoke of, of uh, the United Kingdom or England, which we really didn't. And then, because you see what happened, while this was a great time of release of oppression from, from the English and, and America forming its own country, you know, based upon the, the Iroquois Nation Confederacy, most people can generally agree that was a good time. However, what we had at that same point was George Washington uh, chopping down the cherry tree, as it was called, because the Moroccan flag was known as the cherry tree because it was red, also known as Old Glory. And not, although there was a treaty with Morocco to make uh, reciprocity between America and, and Morocco and it all citizens of Morocco or people claiming to be citizens of Morocco would be released, George Washington did not make that known. Therefore, the the legacy of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, which was turned into a children's story. He cannot tell a lie. <laughs> he can only tell a big lie. So <laughs> what what we have is a great revolution, which uh, did a lot. Uh, of good in in a certain sense and and we wouldn't have civil rights the way we do if it wasn't for the way the United States was set up but we had a a selling out of the Moorish legacy and an obfuscation of it then we have the emancipation proclamation which is full of all sorts of legal uh conniving uh loopholes and stuff uh it's emancipation saying you were slaves in the first place. So when you really weren't. And then after we have the civil war, which arguably improves things, we, we don't even have any modicum of civil rights until that was uh, pre uh, what, what occurred before civil rights. The brewing was Jackie Robinson but the thing with Jackie Robinson is there's just about to be a big movie released, I think, on April 12th, the, the anniversary of his um, breaking into the big leagues. But the, the real reason they let Jackie Robinson into the big leagues 
was not because it's time, you know, the Negro has had his day. It's time for his day in the sun. No, it's because the black leagues, the Negro leagues, were so much more competitive and better, and they were booming. They were booming, and they were they had to take away their business. So it was getting too much black power. Yeah. Real, 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 real quick, gentlemen. We are at the five-minute mark before twelve, and um, I want the family to be able to call in so you can hear the show after the uh, twelve o'clock mark. Call-in number, family, is three four seven six three seven twenty-one thirty-five. Now, unfortunately, because we have so many hands up in the call queue. We're not going to have time to finish the whole dissertation tonight, and I really wanted to continue this because we ha- I haven't even gotten into my questions. We haven't really even um, unraveled this thing. But um, do you guys want to go to the callers real quick to entertain some questions? Go ahead. Yeah, okay. sure. All right, definitely. All right, so let's hurry up and go to these callers. Uh, I'm going to jump on the 225 385 225385 peace 225385 All right, we'll get back to that caller. Before we go into the 12 o'clock hour, though, I want both of you to uh, let the family know what is your website. And if if there's anybody that wants to be able to contact you, how can they go about contacting you? And uh, I want to say, Southern Light. Peace to everybody that joined us tonight. Thank you for showing up in um, large numbers to hear this monumental presentation. We look forward to seeing you again on Friday. Mm-hmm. You want me to give my website now? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Mine is uh, skybooksusa.com, skybooksusa.com. I also have a blog at digitalmontauk.com. And you can uh, contact me through there or uh, email skybooks at yahoo.com is my email. Right. And um, for me, uh, you can get a hold of me at my website at ufoteacher.com. That's ufoteacher, all one word, dot com. Um, and you'll see right there, you can enter into the website or just hit on the contact link and you'll see exactly how to contact me. Uh, as far as uh, getting me by email, you can catch me at um, uh, ufoteacher at ufoteacher.com. Thank you. Indeed. Appreciate you. Very well. All right. Let's go to the uh, 310-610-689 caller. Caller from the 310 Peace. Peace, man. How are you? Greetings, All is well. Greetings, greetings to the uh, to the speakers. I uh, I I, I uh, this is Brother Rashid. I'm enjoying the show, and it's a very good one. Um, I enjoyed uh, Mr. Rick Smith's presentation that I saw visually, and I enjoy uh, uh, Mr. Peter Moon's books. So uh, this is an honor for me to call. I do have a question. In regards to the uh, your reference to the tree of life, and 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 the reason why I'm asking is because perhaps I would like to contribute to tonight's discussion 
with some clarity. But I just want to know which tree of life in particular were you speaking of in regards to uh, related to Dracula and to Norway? I did not mention Dracula or Norway. Okay. I mentioned the Dacian tree of life, okay. which has nothing to do with either per se. Okay. Uh, it's from Transylvania, but Transyl- not Trans- Dracula is not even from Transylvania. That's a misconception. But uh, anyway, it's it, no. There's, and there's many trees of life. It's it's just like many organization charts. Same thing. Okay. Okay. Awesome. See, uh, what is the Dacian tree of life? I'm just learning about it. It's like if you take the nine uh, seers or sephirot that are beneath the uh, kether and the tree of life, and you put nine over it, it's sort of like an inversion. You you have a double uh, a double tree of life. And I I'm just learning because all the names in it are Romanian, and I don't speak Romanian. I only know a few select words, so I'm struggling to. Uh, but there's a case to be made for uh, the Egyptian civilization and the and the Christian religion and all these religions evolving out of that area. Um, a very strong case to be made for it. But it's it's hard to uh, there's a lot of prejudice against that area and inside of the area as well. It ties to gypsies. It ties to a lot of different things, but. When you say that area for the listening audience, um, it's very important, I think, for the listeners who are perhaps um, beginning their journey towards self-discovery through an overview of history. Sometimes in the discussion and with this limited use of our our language, we don't describe the ethnographic background of the people in the place because oftentimes we think that a certain kind of people are in a certain kind of place. But if you are asserting that the traditions that encompass the uh, origin of religion come from that area, uh, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a little, uh, it's, it's, I I don't want to disrespect you, you as a, as a, uh, as a, as a teacher, I, I understand meta history and I, I'm thinking that if you're saying indigenous people and you speak about the the uh, the content of the people as far as their culture because their race is connected to their culture and their acknowledgement of God, then it goes against almost everything that we've been taught and that we honor and respect in our teachers who delve into Africa as being a point of reference for the origin of all the world's spirituality. Well, so as, I will tell you. I will tell you this. You'll find this very interesting, because the history of that area of the planet, which I just mentioned, there's a lot of history known about Africa, intriguing history. But there's no history by Western culture known about this area in Transylvania, which was used to be called the Black Country, called the Black Country. And, but you see the trace of the Moorish history there, and I try and find it, is very wiped out. It's very obscured to where if you have black people going to Romania to this day, they'll want to touch you. They'll want to feel you because they don't 
they don't see black people. They don't know what it's like. They're not they're not prejudiced, although their prejudice is hell against the gypsies, which is a whole other issue. So there's a lot about this this Romanian history that I'm just turning up now, which is brand new to our Western academics, our African academics. In other words, what the professors there have told me that if you test the gold in Egypt that they have remaining, it comes from Romania. It comes from and huge deposits of gold underneath Transylvania, which I'm going to this summer, in tunnels of gold, miles of, of pure gold. There's a lot, and this has all been orchestrated by those forces Rick was talking about to wipe this out, uh, to, to wipe out this memory. It doesn't invalidate the origins of Africa because all of these areas are connected underneath the earth. So for its the origin of Africa, we're going back to 10,000 years where the Ice Age and the Ice Age did not freeze over Transylvania. This is all by concoction. This is mentioned in the book Transylvania Sunrise, which is by a Romanian author. They're not on the Moorish bandwagon at all because they don't know about it. But the, the ice, is, ice did not freeze over there. So the people all retreated into there. And then civilization comes back out. Where we get into a commonality, because the, the white and black thing can be very confusing, where we find a common denominator is with the blue indigenous race, the blue race. And that relates to, it gets a little complicated, but you find the people, the black people in Western Africa are so dark that they're blue, or in the sun they'll turn purple. And it's it's a royalty aspect, so it doesn't really deny that what you're saying about the African origin, but it's the story is more complex and more intriguing. It does not negate it; it just adds more to this infinite complexity. And it's something I'm still struggling with too, because uh, I would have that experience that you speak of. So I hope I address that as best I can for right now. Yeah. If the, if the, if you just allow me just a closing statement, uh, I understand totally what you, uh, what you're saying. I think though, in our study, it, it's very, it behooves us all to look to constantly for Africa for answers because Africa is the one that left behind all of her beautiful she pointed to every direction of the world where she had a legacy. So uh, we always hear, we hear, we look to Africa first, and then Africa tells us about our children and the places that they settled. And um, thank you for your contribution. And as well, I just would like you to, to know and add so to your scholarship so you don't walk in error that the tree of life is an origin comes from a, uh, uh, a African it was a, a, a way of dimensionally organizing the universe. It comes from a series of traditions, and the tradition reached its height with the uh, the work in the 12th and 13th century of the uh, the Moor, uh, Moses de Leon, and all of his uh, contemporaries. Kabbalah reached all the way into the 15th century 
but then there were splits and schisms among Judaic mystics as to who would use the tree of life and who wouldn't. So a lot of people didn't subscribe to it. One of those who didn't was another Moor by the name of Ibrahim Abu Lafia. His method of Kabbalah was intertwining words into one another. But the African source, the North African source of, or the or the other concurrent myth associated with the tree of life is the goddess Offset, because the word tree of life comes from her name phonetically. The Off, and I know you, sir, Mr. Moon, you use, you speak about phonetics and you use uh, words, and I've learned a great deal from your books, but so you don't walk in error, the Et HaKayim comes from the Off. And Aset was often uh, uh, collectively associated with trees, and she functions through wood, and she represents the principle of matter, the material realm that uh, that affords us foliage and growth and life. So the Kabbalistic tree of life that became the cornerstone of what Judaism is, because the Bible is written for is a written form of the two-dimensional tree of life. So, the, the, uh, the, the tree of life I'm talking about is much more ancient than uh, than than even the Jews. Um, well, well, and, the, the 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 thing I to do with with what I offer to the community is that I show them that when you make references and you speak about uh, uh, references, especially those such as the tree of life, and you say that you have one with parallels another where one lies on top of another. I have read hundreds of books, literally, Mr. Moon, on Kabbalah, and I've attended lectures with the world-renowned Kabbalists, one, uh, as of most recent, who has read every existing piece of literature concerning Kabbalah on the entire planet and has access to Vatican documents. And I'm very, I have a, I don't, I don't have a, uh, a novice-like approach to what I'm speaking about. I'm striving to be an expert. And when you say that Nor- Norway or anything outside of Africa has an origin in Judaic mysticism is incorrect, and I don't want you to walk in error. The but you, concept- you need, before you can make a statement like that, you need to learn the Romanian language. And this is all these scholars you're talking about do not speak Romanian. And it, what I'm saying is this is a huge, uh, what you call omission in all of academic scholarship in the world. And all of these great scholars, which obviously they are, have, uh, it's, a, it's, an unknown, it's an unknown commodity in their language. There's even hidden gypsy languages that these people do not know. So these are obscure uh, and, and more truth will come out in the next 20, 20, uh, 10, 20 years. And another thing I'd like to share about Africa, very interesting, uh, because obviously this Giza pyramid was chosen in Africa in, at a very key point, the capstone being 156th, the size of the Great Pyramid, which is 156th, the size of the Giza Plateau, which is 156th, the size of the African continent, which is 156 the size of the earth. This was Great Pyramid was very uh, incredibly uh, astutely put there in Africa for a very good reason. But that 156 ratio is the structure of the Tree of Life because the Tree of Life is patterned with a, 
a hexagram over a pentagram. Now, may I may I continue? Uh, I, I, I just want to say this: you you are describing, sir. You're describing what uh, I gave a presentation in Los Angeles, and you're describing the two dimensional framework of ancient African stories. And if you do, if you were to take uh, one of your books, take a sentence out of your book and remove the words <clears throat> and actually draw the activity of the uh, protagonist or, <clears throat> or the most prominent figure in which you're speaking about, it would create a design concurrent with your psychology and your intent and your writing. And all of what the Tree of Life is is a very new introduction into the mind and it is it is older I, I, the conceptualization is older than Romanian language there is no uh, con- I, I, cha- I would challenge anyone to demonstrate to me that Romania is a cornerstone for language I don't you need think- to you, okay but but you need to understand that there's a very good case for it to be ma- being made the original and, and, Indo-European and one, language but that's not even my point here my and, point and, and listen just one more thing sir and I and I'll totally listen to you but this is not I about the tree of life this is not about the tree of life it's about the Giza pyramid is what I'm saying here okay okay fine and and we also find that in the bible that there is a concurrent tradition that speaks about builders so every every piece of architecture that we occupy now is an extension of african thought and that, that's, concept, that's, that's, that's fine, but let me make the point, because this has nothing to do with the point I'm making, yes, is sir. that the Giza Pyramid, you will find, and this is something I just discovered. So, you know, this is not, when you have knowledge, you can't can it and say this is the way it is. I just discovered this knowledge. I would have been uh, looking at it the same way you did. There is a mountain, C-E-A-H-L-A-U, you can look it up, in Romania that every August 6th what appears a shadow effect from two peaks form a shadow which actually because of the mist in the morning looks like a hologram of the Giza pyramid it and it has the exact same shape so there is a very important connection between these two locales and The the new book I just published, uh, Secret Parchment, Five Tibetan Initiation Techniques, goes into more of the antecedents of what I'm talking about uh, and the scholarship as well of the Romanian language. The most important part to me being that it was called the black country, but they don't know why it's called the black country. They have their their own assumptions, which are not correct, but there is a big connection between Egypt and Romania. That's really all. Also, there's something to pay attention to as well, in conjunction with what Peter's explaining here, is that, um, you know, what was, what, what is Europe today was not Europe of yesterday due to continental shift and the breaking off of super mega continents. Um, I mean, we touched upon it before at the beginning of this whole conversation with the idea that um, that Long Island and Montauk itself was uh, very much a part of um, um, North Africa and had a direct connection to Egypt and Morocco 
henceforth the Montauks inheriting the term pharaoh. Um, if it can happen with Long Island, it can happen with Romania. Okay, same the same principle applies. Okay, okay. Thank to, you for uh, sharing. Also, yes, to the callers in the call queue. Yes, we want to say thank you and. A lot has been gained from this interaction tonight. And, um, yeah. you know, definitely keep our eyes open. Appreciate Bye. you both. The, the speakers are, 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 are well needed. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Peace. Let's go to another caller. I want to go to caller from the uh, 216. Let's go to Philly. 216-325-216. 325 caller. Peace. Yes, peace, peace. Peace and love. Um, listening, um, the information, I just want to say honor and respect and love to the uh, Noble Brothers um, for coming in also. Um, just honor to the Guild as well as to A.A. Rashid. Um, I'm just listening, and I'm just grateful for the information. Um, it resonates with, it's just resonate with my spirit. I have to just go to the brothers' um, website and um, research more. Um, it's just so spiritual and profound, and I'm just grateful that the brothers came through. Thank you very much. Peace and yeah. love to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Much love and big respect. Okay. Indeed. Give thanks. Peace. I think uh, Mr. Moon's line dropped. Oh, no. Yes. Since we're past the 12 o'clock mark, I don't think he could call in. If he ends up calling you on on your line, maybe we could click him in via three-way. Uh-oh. Yeah. In the meantime, yes. We're going to finish taking the callers that are in the call queue. Let me go to caller from uh, caller from the 213. Caller from the 213359. 213, caller. Peace. Peace. What's up? Peace. What's good, bro? Yo. Oh, oh okay. All right. 213359. Right. Uh, 22. Yes, you that's me? That's you. You in the building. I bet. In the middle of that radio piece, bro. All right, first of all, uh, what's up, Sam? What's good with you, I, man? Where you calling I, from? Uh, Orlando, but I'm out here um, west side, L.A. Uh, okay. But take it right. I got a quick question. I was uh, been debating with this older cat, um, my older brother, you know, far so um. Was it the first? Who was uh? Was it the black man, the first uh, president, John Henson, or is that a myth? Because I haven't did the research. He claimed he did do the research and killed that. And I'm looking at it like, well, if Europeans all come out and agree upon a lot on history, you know what I mean? Even as far as with Christopher Columbus, I think we should do the same thing, you know, instead of trying to prove each other wrong. So I, I want to know what's what's up with that. How far um people of um people of color and hue. The world over, throughout all ancient civilizations, um, the sun-kissed people of Earth, they are one and the same with Mother Earth. They are the color of the Earth. 
in all of their different skin tones. Um, the pale skin came along um, as an experimental abomination and therefore came on later on and is not part of the family of men. Um, so when you hear these people saying, oh, we're all equal and uh, we're all, you know, one with each other, uh, no, we're not. And the inherent fact that cannot be denied is that um, white people uh, are undoubtedly very uncomfortable on this planet. It's inherent in the fact that we have to build monumental corporations for the sole purpose of enslaving others and destroying the planet. Um, I have yet to see any black, Hispanic, or Native American, or Asian for that matter, build uh, a master corporation that is hell-bent on enslaving others and destroying the planet. Okay? Now, okay, fine. So you can make an argument for China. Okay, wow, big deal. One example. Okay? China's too busy trying to be equal to the Paskin nations. That's why China has turned into what it is. Um, but the, um, the, 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 the inherent flaw is the whole equality issue. Uh, and no, we are not equal because um, in the good old days, uh, people like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Huey P. Newton and the rest of them, um, they didn't adopt the term equality until much later on when they knew it was necessary to use the term to get the white mainstream on board with the civil rights movement because um, civil rights civil rights and um, equality are not the same thing. Civil rights simply says you have the right and the freedom to pursue your dreams as long as you're not hurting everybody else. We wish you the best of luck and don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Have a nice day. That's the definition of civil rights. There's no mystery in it. Um, equality was a propaganda term invented by the Masonic elite for the sole purpose of should anything about the Moorish legacy come to light globally, that um, the idea would be um, to try and protect any negative backlash against the pale skin by brainwashing everyone into thinking we're all equal. Well, the problem is this, is that um, in order to be equal, you have to have an archetype or a stereotype that serves as the definition of equality. And unfortunately, that archetype is the pale skin. If you don't look like me, talk like me, have my gender or sexual orientation, then you are the enemy. You are the outcast. You do not belong. So... True. That's the downfall of this ridiculous term called equality, which is just a bunch of BS. It has nothing to do with civil rights. I will. Oh, uh, any question? Uh, was was um, John Harrison the first president? Yeah. Um, the yeah. first. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was one of the first, and. Uh, he, he was dark-skinned. Um, 
he was one of those people, part of the Moorish legacy and the Iroquois nation. Um, and so he was one of those original nine or 12 that um, came before George Washington. Okay. And uh, how can I find uh, um, some information on it to debunk, like, the myth that he wasn't? Because the, the brother who I'm talking with is the only Man. guy. And he's yeah, saying his family. name. That, that that information is going to be very much obscured in terms of you finding it online. We had his one of his descendants um, came on the show before, Dave Hansen. I'm going to see if we could bring him back because he has the family history. And, um, you know, in terms of Googling it, you're going to find uh, a lot of misinformation out there. But then there's a lot of information out there. Hakeem Bay has printed it in his um, Morris Paradigm Journal, you know, and I, I think there's other people that have it, you know what I'm saying, posted. But even when Dave Hansen told a story, it was different from anything that I've ever heard. So, you know, but, actually getting thought, our hands on, on a concrete real story, uh, uh, you know. All right, all right. Well, shoot, I know y'all um, uh, beat on time, but I um, I got a friend right here. And since, you know, we had a couple of European experts on here, I wanted to get them to see if they could drop something on Jesus, the myth about Jesus, real quick, just so they could hear because they right here and got the, got the um, little phone recording. Okay. Yeah. So is, uh, do Jesus, the Jesus who we worship, um, 90% of Africans in America worship, that he exists? The Jesus that you worship, <laughs> um, okay, he's always depicted as this Pathkin abomination, okay, which is a constant, ongoing whitewashing campaign. Um, the white Masonic elite tried to do it to Hiram Abiff. They tried to do it to Tutankhamun, and they've done it also to... Um, Guru Master Prophet Isa the Christ, a.k.a. Jesus. And the um, thing is, if um, there, I'm going to put this out there because I want you guys to know this. There is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, absolutely no such thing as a pale-skinned prophet. It is a paradox in terms the term prophet, which relates to the term pharaoh, is meant for people of color and hue and the sun-kissed people of earth, and the pale skin represents the walking dead and therefore the abomination. The entire idea... The entire I, the idea that there is such a thing as a pale skin prophet is an absolute cosmological joke. All right, all right. Well, I appreciate that. All right, all right, you brought, um, all right, y'all keep it up, keep it up. But why do you say so? Oh, we're not. All right, thanks, <laughs> thanks. Peace, bro. Have, all right, have a good day. All Thank right. you. You're about all to right. get livid over here. <laughs> You're about to start moving furniture over to get through the phone. <laughs> if we go to a, another caller, this is caller from the 215-215-609. 
Caller from the 215. Do you guys hear me? Peace. Indeed, we Hello? can. Oh, good evening, gentlemen. This is uh, Mr. Bro. E. Manhattan, caller from Philly. Yes, sir. Loving tonight's show. Um, Mr. Indeed. Smith. Shout out, brother. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Um, this, this comment is for Mr. Smith. Um, this is EC. I wasn't able to uh, make it down last night to Black and Nobel. I came down with a little bug. Um, I think it was a combination of things. As I was talking to Blue the other day, uh, your buddy, the general, he gave me that, that drink he makes, and it brought some stuff up to the surface that I did not know was there. And oh, I was okay, um, the general? Yeah. Yeah, the, the general gave yeah, me that. General, he makes a mean <laughs> concoction. Yeah. Oh, man, that thing is good for what ails you, brother. Yeah, yeah, but, um, I, yeah. I was also playing with some, some Moldavite, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with what that is. But it's a, um, you know what it is? Of course, yeah. Piece of meter, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so between that and that drink, it uh, brought a lot of things up. But I'm good now. Um, I will call Tyson and put an APB out on that DVD that he's doing with uh, Mr. Smith so I can get that from my personal collection ASAP. Ah, wonderful. um, Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just I'm a little upset that I wasn't able to meet you in person, but I'm just happy in knowing that I could have facilitated that whole encounter. Oh so, yeah, um, and you know what? I just wanted to let you know when I put out the um, announcement yesterday promoting it at Black and Nobel, um, I, I put in there I gave you uh, credit for making it happen. So everybody knows that it was you that created the dialogue between myself and Tyson. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. There you go, bro. Uh, I'm not going to hold up too much time. Um, also, I just want to say love and light to Dr. Blair and his family. Yes, yes, um, yes. I hope, hope he gets to listen to this uh, live or in the archives, but I know he knows that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people supporting him in this time right now. Um, I wasn't able to talk to him, and I told him about the fund that I set up, but he said he had to clear it with his business manager, so I'm not going to promote that via the airwaves. But if he gives me the okay, then I'll put it out there. Okay. But um, We'll, we'll keep the lines open for that, yeah. Yeah, I'm just waiting to hear what he says, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to hold up too much time. I would just like to know if I could have 30 seconds to express myself Got artistically. It. Let's go. All right, cool. Ten years ago, I could only tell you what the hood was like. Now I'm in museums seeing statues, and hey, we look alike. It's pharaohs in my family, the blood of the guys, the creators of the ante, so I'm playing all my cards. Now I climb this path, I've dined and I've laughed. I've dined in the past, I've died and come back. I've lived in the present, I'm here giving presents. I live in this presence while they cheer for the reverend. I was born in the future. I died and was born again. A pure soul in the hellish world, I guess we all are born in sin, according to the zealots, but that depends on who tells it. Watching Constantine in movies that could tell us about relics, restoring the faith to the faceless, the fate of the faceless, realizing we are one doing jujitsu in the Matrix. So on behalf of the hoodlums, the students and the scholars, Mr. Moon and Mr. Smith, thank you both for the knowledge. 44 Gun Salute. 
sir. Only you can. All right. Salute, bro. Thank you, sir. Salute. Thank you. And with that, I'm going. Hey, Have a good night. Thank you, too. Let's go to the 301. Call it from the 301. 301 533. 301 caller. Peace. Assalamu alaikum. To the galaxy. Hey, yes. Very excited about the show. I'm glad to see. Mr. Smith and Mr. Moon on here. Thank you for that red and blue pill. That was a treat. Yes, indeed. That's, that's, that's uh, what is it, Christmas in April. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, and if you all can, please set up a part two. But I have a question for everybody on the line, Mr. Smith, about what your insight is into the events that are happening around the world today. Mm, yes. Uh, the things that are taking place today um, represent, in many ways, um, a lot of different power struggles going on between middle management and upper management. Um, I, I <laughs> a, um, a good example of this would be uh, the... Um, the World Trade Center disaster, okay? Um, in order to understand the significance of the World Trade Center disaster, you have to take a few steps back and look at the history behind what was happening here. Um, the, the power always moves like a vortex across the face of the planet. And with the, the downfall of the Nazi party, um, there was no winning or losing there in World War II. There was just simply a disintegration of middle management, a.k.a. the Third Reich, on behalf of the white Masonic elite. And then power moved like a vortex across the face of the planet, and it moved in the direction of the Southeast United States and embedded itself and eventually what became known as the neocons, the neocon movement in the southeast United States. Essentially, um, these lunatics referred to as the Ku Klux Klan that figured out that they could uh, move into politics, win elections, and become politicians, and then basically move into national elections and higher offices and um, take over the party. So what was the Nazi became the neocon. And as such, by extension, the new Republican Party. Um, with that in mind, by the time the year 2000 came along, you have um, this coup d'etat against the government on behalf of this group of degenerate neocons uh, with um, this idiot named George W. Bush, son of Papa Bush, at the center of it all. What was happening here was a friction between father and son. Father, George uh, Bush, um, represents upper management. Um, he knows how to obey the system. He is the Pindar, which means he is the kingpin of the Western Hemisphere for the Masonic elite. 
and um, you know he stays on good relations with them, which is why he also backed away from the NRA um, because the NRA represents a bunch of once again degenerate miscreants that are an embarrassment to the Masonic elites. And as such, George Papa Bush uh, dumped his membership with the NRA at the time. Um, when his son decides to run for the presidency in the year 2000, this was more of a frictional rebellion between father and son, with the son, the idiot, uh, representing middle management. Once again, very much like Adolf Hitler represented middle management for the Third Reich. And um, so he comes to power. Now, he surrounded himself with these with this 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 lunatic fringe known as the neocons um, and truly warped and demented mentality within the Masonic elite now um, on several occasions when he was screwing up pretty bad his father went to visit him and you saw that in the news media when his own father went to have a talk with him and have a little sit-down with his son at the time that his son illegally and illegitimately took over the government in a coup d'etat that would make Napoleon Bonaparte green with envy. And as such, he told his son in no uncertain terms, look, um, you're screwing up here. Uh, If you don't start obeying the rules, um, you're going to be stripped of your power, and there's not a damn thing that I, as your father, can do about it because those are the rules. And he also told them, he says, um, you are surrounding yourself with an element that is not approved by the Masonic elite. And now the son doesn't want to listen to his father because the son has always been an imbecile, a degenerate, and is constantly looking for ways to outdo his father. Um that's why we had this whole fraudulent, manufactured, and fabricated thing with the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. He was basically rubbing his father's nose in the fact that his father supposedly failed in Iraq during the late 80s. And here he was. He was going to just march in and take over Baghdad, and that was that. Uh, just to show that he was better than his father. Well, not only... Not only was that adding insult to injury, but he ignored his father's advice. And it was decided at that point among the neocons that they didn't want to be just middle management. They wanted to take over the whole damn thing. They wanted Iraq. They wanted Afghanistan. They wanted the oil. Okay. Um, And they sent a message to the white Masonic elite by destroying the World Trade Center. That was their way of sending a message to upper management saying, we're not going to listen to you. We are going to become the new upper management. We're going to take over the whole operation, whether you like it or not. Now, the significance in that is that the World Trade Center, of which there was no world trading going on, represented the Western um, center of power Uh, for the Illuminati, which represents the high upper elite of the white Masonic elite, 
and it was the Western political arm of the World Trade Organization. So by bombing and destroying the World Trade Center from the inside out, if, if you were trying to piss off the white Masonic elite, that would be the way to do it. And sure enough, it did. And the white Masonic elite, or upper management, was like, well, okay, um, Hitler didn't learn his lesson. You obviously are not going to learn yours. We're going to do the same thing to you that we did to Hitler. And we're going to strip you of your power. And sure enough, one by one, as the months and the short years went on, every one of his goombas or capos or head honchos were either forced to retire or died of illness or were discredited. Um, you know, Donald Brunsfeld, John Ashcroft, and the rest of that batch of imbeciles and psychopaths that he was surrounded by were stripped away to the point where he was left all by himself and he will forever be written into history as the single worst president that ever existed. And that will be done on purpose um, as his punishment. Um, I mean, up until that point, Ulysses S. Grant was seen as the worst president. Um, but George W. Bush outdid it by leaps and bounds. And the white Masonic elite will make damn sure that throughout all of history, he is seen as the fool, the imbecile, um, and that will be his punishment for trying to rebel against upper management. That's one example of what's going on these days, and a prime example of that. Um, another example is that uh, things that are going on today is not too long ago, we had that horrendous um, Hurricane Katrina some years back that was intentionally used to target the Moorish community down in Louisiana. Okay? Um, and that was done on purpose. Now, earlier tonight, uh, Peter Moon and I were talking about how the, the word cat and the cat energy represents the Moorish legacy. Um, El Gato in Spanish, which of course means the gate and is therefore a direct reference to the pharaoh who represents the channel or the gateway uh, between this world and the next. Um, if you were trying to stab someone in the back or rub their nose in it, you would, once again, steal something that's theirs and use it against them. Well, what was the name of the hurricane? The name of the hurricane was Katrina. Okay? That's a dead giveaway right there. The hurricane was created by weather control, and it was hurled as a ticking time bomb towards that Moorish community down there in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was intentionally used to destroy it because people like Dick Cheney and the uh, Goombas over at Halliburton and the rest of his rich corporate titans were salivating at the jowls over getting their hands on that rich waterfront real estate down there, of which the people in the Moorish community would not give up and would not sell it. So, once again, here's another example of what's going on these days. In terms of the calamities that are taking place right now, um, of which have always taken place, you know, people start talking about earth changes and all this stuff. Well, you know, the earth changes officially started back in 1980 with the explosion of Mount St. Helens up in uh, Washington State there. And, um, but nobody paid attention to it then. But that was the official beginning of it. And it's been evolving and slowly increasing 
over the past 30 years or so now. And the thing is, is that um, Mother Earth is just really, she's getting to that point where she's being left no choice but to see the human experiment as nothing more than germ warfare. And as such, um, she's getting to that point where she herself will redefine the human race as a viral infection and therefore proceed to marshal an entire arsenal of national disasters against the human race. Um, it's her way of saying, look, I'm sick and tired of um, you idiots allowing these transnational corporations and these pharmaceutical multinationals and these corporate conglomerates and media monopolies to get away with murder. You know who operates these companies, and it's not people of color and hue. It's the pale skin. And she's sick and tired of this abortion of a minority, these pale skinned elites, uh, this, which represents, you know, 30% of the planet, controlling the other 70% and the other for 70% remaining dumb and stupid and ignorant to it and just sitting back and being like, well, I don't know what to do about it, you know? Um, there's got to be um, a paradigm shift here, a shift in consciousness, a shift in values, okay? Um, it, 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 there's no reason to watch the 6 o'clock news anymore. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, uh, to this day, there is no half-hour sitcom on television that can measure up to the intelligence of things like The Honeymooners or All in the Family or Good Times, you know, the good stuff that was controversial at the time that nobody will do anymore because now we have this watered-down crap that feeds right into a dim-witted population. Um, you know, Mother Earth is sick and tired of the fact that we've dumbed down our vocabulary. In the 1970s, the average person had an average vocabulary of 5,000 to 7,000 words. By the time the year 2000 came along, the average person barely had an average vocabulary of two to 3,000 words. Now, how the hell does that happen? Okay. Um, she's sick and tired of the fact that we know we're polluting our bodies via scumbags like Pfizer and Monsanto and McDonald's and Burger King and the food and drug industry collectively via the high priesthood of the pharmaceutical multinational. You know you guys are doing it to your bodies, and you know that's the thing that's dumbing you down and screwing up your genetics, and that's what's feeding into the watered-down vocabulary and the loss of words and the loss of ability to construct an intelligent sentence. So all these okay. things have finally culminated to the point where... Um, she's fed up with you guys. Fed up with right. everybody. I agree. I gotta interrupt and say something that's so interesting because it's like, let's say that she can see us doing that, and she's like, okay, that's how you feel about your body, but that's not how I feel about my body. But excuse me, right. Smith, go on, please. Exactly. Exactly. Now, of course, you have those elements within the benevolent factions of the galactic community are like, you know, 
you know, there's still somebody out there that's rooting for us, okay, in the galactic community, because the ultimate conspiracy is the fact that we still exist. Um, we should have been dead a long time ago, and there's no logical reason for us to exist after the 1950s, which is the middle of the 20th century, with, because um, in the 40s and the 50s, there was the experimental explosions of the splitting of the atom and the atomic bomb. The Every scientist on the planet knew that the Earth's atmosphere was supposed to be set on fire, and the entire planet would have gone down in a giant fireball, burning out everybody on the planet into ash and cinder. We all should have been dead, okay, by the time 1950 came along. The thing is, we're still here. And the reason we're still here is because someone from the galactic community came down and laced the Earth's atmosphere um, to assist Mother Earth, and therefore offsetting the chemical reaction in the atmosphere to avoid setting the oxygen on fire, and therefore localized the explosions to New Mexico and the Pacific Ocean. Um, so that it could remain localized. Um, unfortunately, what also pisses off Mother Earth is the fact that that technology, which was used to save the human race in the mid-20th century, eventually evolved by the year, uh, by the year 2000 into um, an abortion of that technology because the corporations got their hands on it and turned it into what we now refer to as chemtrails, which is now poisoning the atmosphere again. So that doesn't make her too happy with us either. I can dig it. Yes, sir. Thank you for that. Thank you again, yes, Nodalette, for this show. Thank you, Carla. Appreciate you. All right. Appreciate you. Yes, sir. Peace. Peace. All right, we're going to take one or two more callers before we call it a night. Let me go to a Skype caller. This is a caller by the name of John. John Waliker. John, you there? Hello. Uh, hello, do you hear me? Yes, we do hear you. Okay, uh, peace. Uh, well... Uh, well, if there was time, I would uh, ask a hundred questions, uh, but I brought it down to three. And uh, one question was um, that uh, I, I wondered about the movements uh, of the Moors into Europe after the uh, Re Reconquista and Inquisition. Um, so where, where did the Moors go after they were... Uh, battled in Spain during the Reconquista. Did they go okay. further into Europe? or? What I can say to that is this, and I don't know if it's the same time frame, but um, there's a there is a very big reason why um, Southern Europeans 
around the area of the Mediterranean, whether it be Italy, Sicily, Malta, um, southern France, Spain, okay, um, Greece. There's a reason why, across the board, the southern European has the dark olive skin and the dark hair, and the northern European essentially has the blonde hair and the blue eyes and the fair skin. Um, there was a point where the Moors came up from North Africa into Europe. Part of that had to do with um, Hannibal and his, his initial um, campaign into southern Europe there. Um, and uh, just like in the movie True Romance, the dialogue between Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken is very, very true. Mm -hmm. The only reason Sicilians exist at all is because of the Moors in Africa. And this is where the dark hair and the dark skin comes from. Now, it's often been characterized as them being um, barbaric, conquering invaders, which could not be farther from the truth. They came up into Europe and taught them how to set up plumbing and how to stop mm -hmm. throwing fecal matter into the streets and mm -hmm. create clean water and live in a clean environment, have better hygiene. Um, but, of course, nobody wants to attribute that to them, ever. But um, that's what went on there. And then they just simply married into it. Um, also, in terms of a more ancient origin, um, southern France used to be called Gaul, and there are the original the original legacy of Mary Magdalene and the original legacy of the Merovingian kings. Um, that, too, is of a Moorish legacy, and it's in the term, Merovingian. Uh, Mer, meaning of the sea, and also meaning Moor, because the Moors were master mariners of the sea, and Vingian uh, is a reference to uh, uh, vinya, or vineyard, or vine, grapevine. And mm -hmm. throughout history, Vingian or Vinya or vine has always been a very, very traditional thing um, that is a significant symbolic reference to family bloodline, which mm -hmm. is why to this day, you know, people who run vineyards keep it in the family because there's a symbolism there between the family bloodline and the grapevine. And um, and therefore, the evolution of the symbolism between uh, wine, which comes from the grape, equating to blood, okay? And um, the blood of the chalice equating to the wine being drank. Mm -hmm. So the term Merovingian means bloodline of the Moors. And that's where the term Merovingian comes from. Um but that was much, much earlier on. Um, the, the more significant part was much later on when they come up from North Africa into Europe and create that that whole bloodline of the dark-skinned, dark-haired, southern European, um, henceforth essentially inventing the Mediterranean look. Um, mm -hmm. This... Um, is rather interesting because yeah, this results in um, a lot of uh, bitterness to some extent. Um, I mean, 
I myself would never want to sit face to face with a Sicilian and try mm. to express to them because I have no idea if I'm talking to someone in the mafia and therefore get my throat slit. But um, the, the truth of the matter is, is that that's where they come from. The problem is, is that the dark-skinned Italian or the dark-skinned Sicilian of Southern Europe would always want to see themselves as equal to the Northern European, pale-skinned, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. Um, psychologically, they never wanted to see themselves as part of Africa. Yes. So this causes a big problem later on because now you have this symbolic thing going on later on where, by example, going, going a lot, you're pushing it up to the 20th century in the 1960s, um, you have the intentional collaboration between the white uh, Masonic FBI, white Masonic Lodge, so to speak, and the black Masons, in this case, the Italian or Sicilian Mafia, mm-hmm. work in conjunction with the FBI to basically attack and obliterate the black Panthers and the black community with drugs. Mm. Uh, that's a powerful symbolism that comes straight out of ancient history there. Um, and in association with that vendetta, because here you have the dark-skinned Italian or Sicilian who is extremely eager to destroy uh, the black community as a psychological backlash to having the dark skin and the dark hair. Mm. Can you... I, I say... I... Excuse me, Rick Smith. Um, Rick. M- Rick. May I... May... Pardon? Yes, uh, are you... Are you uh, heavy? Yes, yes. I, I would say the, the Morris legacy is, is a noble uh, legacy. And uh, people in, in yeah like in Europe, we have these traits of the Southern Europe uh, man. I, th- I think it's it's it the, is there is there uh, a way of reconciliation between these different uh, bloodlines between yes, the, the more course. original Moors towards the Southern Europe. Descendants of the Moors. Of course, there is. Of course, um, you know. I mean, and, and I, I don't mean this to sound naive or anything, but there is the.